On the Empire Podcast this week, we talked to Alan Leach, star of Downton Abbey, and this week's scary film in fear. Plus, we have an actual real live Oscar winner in the pod booth as well as Forrest Whitaker drops in to talk about Lee Daniels, the butler. Plus, it's a packed week at the multiplex as we reviewed those movies, plus Don John, Dom Hemingway, and The Counselor. Plus, there's much, much more on the only movie podcast that went to see a play called Macbeth in Pitch Black last night and now can't get the thought of Finn Diesel in a kilt out of its mind. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three colleagues who are knowledgeable, passionate, loyal, intelligent, but most of all, available and free. First is a woman so geeky that she knows the words the Navi National Anthem is Helen O'Hara. Hello. I don't really. I yes, just know do. a couple of words of Navi. You really? Yeah. Genuinely, you know some words of Navi. I remember one. I went to a talk by the guy who invented the language uh, when they were releasing the DVD. It was for work, uh-huh. not for pleasure. Uh-huh. And uh, and he explained, you know, how he put the language together. And for some reason, the word he described as his favourite is stuck in my head. And it is, I believe, meowaunia. I have a pen. Which means a sense of being in harmony with the world, which is a nice word. It's not pithy, though, is it? It's not pithy. No, it's quite quite lengthy. Only yeah. two two consonants in there, but it's quite nice. So you wouldn't be able to, for example, ask about bus times on Navi. No, I'd need a bit more like practice. Leonoptrix times, yeah. surely. Leonoptrix <laughs> <Great laughs> times. Seriously, <laughs> you're waiting ages, and then two come along at the same time. <laughs> Where is the library tree? Uh, oh, I can say that obviously. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next up is our resident art house guru, a man so geeky he knows the words to the national anthem of Metropolis. It's Phil Dissemblian. Hi, Chris. It's actually a city. Doesn't I know. have an anthem. I know. But, but I've, I've gone off art house films. Have you? Yeah. Really? What do you like now? I don't like them anymore. <laughs> I mean, is this like... just to avoid the intro every week? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I love them. They're the best. They're the best. And I'll got... always love them. And screw you. <laughs> You've got four archives DVDs sellotaped your body right now. <laughs> yeah. Just to have them on my clothes. Yeah. yeah I You're obviously... a dealer. Love it. And last but not least, is a man whose love of comedy is so great that he knows the words of the East German national anthem according to Top Secret. It is, of course. Heil, heil, East Germany, land of fine and grape, land where... Maybe I'll maybe not sing the whole thing, but it's Ali Plum. Hello, Ali Plum. Heil. Heil, Ali Plum. The full national anthem is Heil, heil, East Germany, land of fine and grape, land where you'll regret any try to escape, no matter if you tunnel under or take a running jump at the wall, no matter (laughs) the guards will kill you. If the electrified fence doesn't first, that's the it's, national. It's inspiring, <laughs> stirring stuff. <laughs> it really is. Put your hand in your heart and sing for East Germany. Time for your lovely questions now. You've been sending them in all week via Twitter, via Facebook. We've got a Facebook question this week. Ooh. A Facebook question this week. And an email question as well. Let's start off with a question on Twitter from at Fidel Afros Ebo, who asks, I'm watching Gravity tonight with high hopes. What slash when was the newest addition to your personal top five films? Interesting. I don't really have a firm top five. I mean, it changes from day to day. So it's quite hard to say. I mean, you know, I went nuts for the Avengers, as I've mentioned (laughs) once or twice. I think people may know that. Um, But I also, I mean, probably even above that, I went absolutely bananas for True Grit and loved that. That might be a top five film. So that was, what, 2011, Mm, 2010? Absolutely loved True Grit. Fantastic, fantastic role for Hayley Steinfeld there. Phil, what about you? I imagine your top five is a cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 
the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari 2, Cabinet Boogaloo. The Chaise Long of Caligari. <laughs> the Long. He goes through the whole sort of DFS suite. Uh, the the Billy bookcase of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Oh, please. It's he's just, a little bit higher class than Ikea. There's one where he's, yeah, he's just trying to put, to, put together flat pack furniture for an afternoon. I don't know. If you put together a Billy bookcase, it ends up looking like something out of the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. <laughs> Heloise does my do it. It's all a dream. It's all slanted. He never went to Ikea. So where were we? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, top, top five. five. It's funny because when you talk to people, we, we obviously speak to a lot of filmmakers and we ask them, you know, the films that influenced them and inspired them and basically ask them what their favourite films are. And then when I get asked it, I just can't, I can't think. And I certainly can't put together the top five off the top of my head. But thinking about the films recently that I've really loved, um, I would say probably Pan's Labyrinth would be the one, the one that would be closest to that list. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I love... Out of Sight, a little earlier, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, maybe uh, The Lives of Others, Downfall, mm. and anything by the Dardenne Brothers. Anything by the Dardenne Brothers. Just anything, literally, that they do. Didn't they do Norbit? Norbit. Um, I don't think that was the Dardenne Brothers. That wasn't the one there, so okay. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird. I don't have anything laminated. Um, I don't like hand out a personal top five. I don't carry it around with me. I would tend to think normally it would be things like Evil Dead 2. Obviously. Obviously. Event Horizon. Not really. Mm. Uh, Shawshank Redemption. But then once you start thinking about the Star Wars movies, well, where did they go? Because there's six of those and they're all equally brilliant. Um, uh, yeah, I know. Um, how do so, you pick just five Sean Pertwee movies? The thing, how do you pick five Sean Pertwee movies? He's, the man's made a thousand and fifteen <laughs> films. Uh, you, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing is on there. George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Actually, Dead the Dead's my favourite, so that would be on there as well. But Die recently, Hard. Die Hard, obviously. See, I'm ready. I'm all for five. But recently, The Raid, uh, for me, gets on there. Anchorman will be on the list. For me, it's the best comedy since uh, Top Secret. Uh, where do you put Shaun of the Dead? Where do you put uh, The Avengers? Hell yeah. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Yeah. Out of Sight, as you mentioned. I mean, so, yeah, I don't know. But I guess recently... Darden. Recently, 2012, assaulted my top five quite a lot. I think there was a concerted assault on it by the Avengers and, and the Raid in the same year. Damn them. Ali? I guess mine aren't anywhere near now. I mean, we seem to be always talking about movies that we've seen recently. You're talking about the Raid or, or True Grit or whatever. But a movie that I discovered relatively recently, I think it was like maybe five or so years ago, was Sweet Smell of Success, which I hadn't seen before. Amazing. And mm. that was going off the back of a... Uh, Ealing comedy bender and you know the the, the director of Alexander uh, McKendrick yeah. yeah of of a large number of your favourite uh, Ealing comedies did Sweet Smell of Success and kind of delivered a film that the studio weren't necessarily expecting even though if they looked at the script they may have got a good idea of it uh, but yeah that is a stunning film and really means a lot to me now even though it's only really just become part of my life before that I would say uh, Local Hero uh, I I came to that like by myself buying it for a quid in a charity shop when I was about 19 um, so yeah like I, I don't know whether I really do the top five things ever but you'd be amazed how often people ask you they hear you work obviously in a film magazine and they go oh, so what's your favourite movie and you kind of want to go well considering I am that person I'm almost the worst person to ask that because I've got so many thoughts and opinions on that that I can't give you the mm. it's Evil Dead 2 yeah, oh well yeah <laughs> uh, for you perhaps that's but, right yeah. no, that's the right answer for everybody and you, it should you can, be, that should be uniform you can have a standard answer but you, you're basically lying if you do I Quite. think if you're a real movie fan I think you're probably lying if you have a top 10 controversial opinion perhaps I don't think you're lying I think I think it's a it's a snapshot in time it's it's not it's never ever ever definitive it's not set in stone 
Even of what you've already seen, it's never definitive. Yeah. I mean, Serrano de Bergerac and The Princess Bride are continually up around number one for me. Some Like It Hot, The Apartment are in there. His Girl Friday is up there. You know, they're just, there's no one way one of those that's much better than the rest Casablanca okay it's probably better than the rest but it doesn't mean I love it more it's an interesting question though from, from Fidel uh, here who's basically saying he's going to see Gravity expecting it to get crash as top 5 have you ever done that if you've gone to a film yes I have thinking okay this is going to deliver I had that last week and I was really? hoping, hoping to save this for the review last of the year okay. but I hadn't you know we even asked uh, for the magazine for our top 10s uh, and Chris, you're saying to me, can I get your top ten? And I was like, yeah, but I want to watch Captain Phillips first because that seems so up my alley. I'm really, really game for that. Love Tom Hanks. Greengrass, yes, please. Have a bit of that. Journalism as well as, you know, action. And I found it very, very disappointing. And I think... Yeah, we're going to discuss this in greater detail in the review of the year, which is... Uh, as I say, I yeah. I yelled at you for five minutes. Uh, but with Fidel Adros O. Ebo, um, I think it is a mistake to walk into a film and say this is going to get crash my top five of the year, of the month, of the whatever. You need to go in, read the reviews if you like, have high hopes, but don't say this is gonna, this is gonna knock it out. This will take out Evil Dead. Don't do that. Just go and watch it and and appreciate it for what it is when you saw it. And likewise, when you see it for the second time, appreciate it again for what it's worth mm, the second yeah. time around. I think some of the best films are the ones you go into with low expectations and then they, they impress you. Um, I think that's one of the reasons I loved Thor so much both times because I went in thinking, oh God, this is going to go wrong and they and it, and it didn't. Yeah. Um, and I even went into The Avengers with low expectations and it wasn't. So, you know, it, it, uh, it, it helps sometimes not to go in thinking, I'm here to be impressed. Come on, blow me away. Yeah. I guess it's a bit like, you know, you go out for, you go to a three Michelin star restaurant, you walk through a door, it's a three Michelin star restaurant, you know it's a three Michelin star restaurant, and you expect the food to be that good. Whereas if you just go into a door expecting to be fed, and they give you that, you're like, that's amazing. Mm. And I remember seeing Animal Kingdom, thinking that it was a film about animals, um, <laughs> and literally not knowing anything about it or who was in it, or what it was, or anything, and really being quite dazzled by it. It's just it unusual one of in my, our line of work for that to happen. Very unusual. It was very advanced. Like, it was about nine months before it got, got a release. Mm. Ooh, look at me. And um, <laughs> I, I like, having no information on it at all, is, is, it's like being trapped into a roller coaster and really not knowing where it's going to take you. And it's kind of an amazing experience and feel lucky to have done that. Um, that yeah, that happens a lot at Cannes, obviously, mm. where you're just, you know, kind of parachuted into movies. You've no idea what the hell you're going to watch or who's in them. And then sometimes you go to interview people and you've, you've had no time to do any research and it's a, the whole thing's a seat of your pants affair, but I, but I love it. It's a weird one because it's, you literally just have the title to go on. Yeah. That's it. And if it's, if it's a bit of a curveball title or, or a metaphor, dare I say it. Especially <laughs> if it's a first-time director. And first-time yeah. director, exactly. Yeah, there's a difficult thing with Cannes as well, uh, which is that sometimes you can be bludgeoned to critical acceptance by watching enough films that you absolutely loathe and then you see one which is half decent and you go yes my favourite of the festival two days later you have four more favourites of the festival and then the next day you have 18 so it's it's that's a it's a difficult place to review I think but there are times it absolutely clicks I saw The Artist for the first time I can and I was just you know talking about films that maybe would gay crash the top five you know, I love that film. That's my film of the year. That the year came out. You just, you just knew you were watching something special. Mm. Uh, so that's interesting. But can I just say, Phil, um, you work for Empire. How the hell can you afford to go to three Michelin star restaurant? 
I've never been to three missions, so I'm guessing. Oh, it was a metaphor. Uh, okay, I think we've exhausted that question. Let's move on now to uh, an old podcast favourite, NC Lowe, who asks, what's your pet peeve trope? Mine is token female character just there to enable dull romance storyline. Mm, interesting. Mm. So, token female character, Helen. Ah, thanks. <laughs> Damn you. Um, I would agree. I think uh, the, the women that are put in a film just to interact with with men which is actually most women in a lot of films I would say Frida Pinto in Rise of the Planet of the Apes is the biggest one for me in recent times Oh, she does nothing in that movie I'd say she's not the biggest but yeah she's a very good example of the trope um yes uh my actual pet peeve is a slightly different one mine is the father complex I could live out the rest of my life quite happily without ever seeing another freaking hero with a damn father complex get over it guys seriously they all have father complexes. Every like male action hero, ver- every single one I think played by Tom Cruise between about 1984 and ni- and 2000 had a father complex. Um, and really, this whole angst over whatever you know, winning his approval, avenging his death, whatever, whatever, really is the worst and the most overused trope in cinema. It is a bit dull. I'll give you that. It's become a bit ubiquitous. What about if they've got a mother complex as well, like Bond? Let's go to the real you know, nuts and bolts of this. Uh, we've got company uh, as, as a phrase that is used in yes. any occasion when someone is doing a thing and then someone behind them is chasing them. We've got company. Uh, in The Butler, which we'll be reviewing later and obviously talking about with uh, Sir Forrester Whitaker, uh, there is a time where I promise you this is true. They're putting on the white gloves and they go, it's showtime. Yeah, you're damn right, Showtime, as it is in about 400 different films from when you're putting the bins out or feeding the dog, it's Showtime. Uh, speaking of dogs, any time you have a quizzical dog look that goes, ruh <laughs> uh, or a double-take pigeon, we've talked about the double-take pigeon in Moonraker before, but a double-taking animal is a trope that is... You know what? You're being asked what my pet peeves are. This is my pet peeve. I love it. It also should never exist, is the double-taking animal. Do you know what? I was watching Willow the other day and uh, the baby does some double takes in Willow and they're actually brilliant. However long they kept the camera on that infant to get those reactions, they're brilliant reactions. And I I probably agree with you that they shouldn't exist, but they're really well done. So I have a little bit of a soft spot for that particular trope. Have you ever seen anyone doing a double take in real life? I've seen a double take. And when they happen in real life, they're normally like triple or quadruple. Like, it's, ge- it's genuine, like... You could get, like, whiplash. Have yeah. you ever seen someone drinking and then spit it out? A spit take? Yeah. I've I seen have, someone actually, do that yeah. half-cough choke where you go... <gasps> I've never seen, actually, a jet of water fly across a bar. So you've never seen that thing where someone's drinking and someone says something really inappropriate and they go... <laughs> That's never happened to you. Because it's never happened to me. The movies are lying to us. Here's something that gets on my nerves a little bit. Is why is it in a movie, when they go to a bar on a Friday night, they don't have to queue for a drink like the rest of us? There should be a scene where it's just 20 minutes of them just trying to get to the bar and not being served. They also never lock their cars, never say goodbye when they get off the phone. I mean, all those kind of like little just slow you down things just don't exist in Music, movie Music, which land. is too quiet on a dance floor so yes. everyone can talk. Yeah. And I was like, it's properly, it's being done by the production team, so it looks really thumping. Yeah. Yes. And then it's suddenly, so, uh, do you enjoy the game last night? Honorable, <laughs> honorable exception, The Social Network, which did that really, really well. Yeah, it did. Uh, I, uh, yeah, t- talking about uh, other conventions, sitcoms do that an awful lot, where uh, people just leave their front doors wide open. Or mm. not wide open, but unlocked. 
I kept expecting an episode of Friends to begin with Chandler and, and Joey going into Monica and Rachel's apartment to find they'd been murdered in their sleep because anyone can just walk in. It's New York, for God's sake. The yeah. death trap. Yeah, the one where they're horribly murdered mm-hmm. in her sleep. I've got a couple more. John Carpenter's friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the theme tune. What about yeah? <laughs> what about cars exploding for no reason? This is why I like films <laughs> like. At the this same is why time. I like films like Twenty One Jump Street because yes. they are just taking the piss out of these tropes that are just they because they kind of build up inside of you when you're watching these films. And you're like, that's so stupid. That's so stupid. But you never really talk about them because you just take them for granted. And then a film like Twenty One Jump Street comes along and has the the chicken the the truck. Is the truck gonna blow up? And they play. Is the truck gonna blow up? And they're playing the music, and it's like dun, 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 no. And then the next one, and then it just and then it just blows up for no reason. It's hilarious. But yeah, cars are just driving down a cliff. What makes a car explode? Well, that's an Austin Powers, isn't it? The best one is in Top Secret. Mm. Yeah. Not, not to break out Top Secret again, but there's a, <laughs> an amazing Dude. car driving into another car, and I, they just literally Pinto go, or something, isn't it? Yeah, I never got that joke. I always thought the joke was uh, it's just funny because it's playing in that convention of cars driving into each other and exploding for no reason. But there's actually an underlying joke there, yeah. which you can read about my top secret feature. Blah, blah, blah. But uh, the, the joke was that it was a the, the car is a Pinto, which uh, <laughs> apparently notoriously just would explode. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah, they would just they would just kind of blow up, not in a clown <laughs> way, but yeah, in but a, in a sort movie of, way. In a literally, I'm driving along and now I'm being catapulted <laughs> through the air. <laughs> And I'm on fire. Did they get sued? Uh, who? I think there was, I think yes, there was a recall, yeah. and that's why it was yeah. it was kind of in the in the news at the time. That, that reminds you for when they released the Vauxhall Nova. It wasn't released under the name Vauxhall, but they released the Vauxhall Nova in Spain. And in Spain, <laughs> Nova Nova means doesn't go. So they had to recall all of those cars. <laughs> really? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nova. 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 Uh, a couple of verbal ones I've got here, which is, and by thing I of course mean thing. When? Oh, yes, yes, yes. That happens that, yeah. all the time. Yeah. He's standing right behind me, isn't he? Yes. Oh, that's, uh, a, that's an NCIS trope, which they've actually just kept going so long that it's actually become its own thing in that show. You know, Ali, we're very much alike, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> that's another one I don't like. Yeah, the phrase is, um, what is the other way they, you can put that? It's We have much in common, you and I? Yeah, that's the, we're not all that different. Yeah. yeah, maybe we're not all that different after all. We're two sides of the same kind, Mr. Bond. We both have father complexes. Yes, I have a laser, you have privates. <laughs> Let's put these things together. Also, I don't like when people just hang up on the phone without saying goodbye. What's yeah. that about? That's just rude. No, I think actually Nick we, Nick might have talked about that on the podcast and the idea that they, one of the people is just there still on the end of the line just <laughs> waiting. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, Normally in that situation you would call back because you would think that they had their phone had just dropped a call. Yes. So that's what you need. And also I think we've discussed it on the podcast before but that, that great convention of someone walking into a room and going, you need to see this right now and turning on the TV. <laughs> it's like, well, really? Because if you were watching that in another room then it wouldn't be on by the time you got into the room. Well, like, instead of Channel 4 plus one, it's like instead of Channel 4 plus one minute, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's or, what they have. Also, in- it's never like, wait, wait, was it was it on BBC One or three? Hang on, let's just go through. Let's go through. Wait, okay. hang on. How do you work your remote you, control? Because this is a different model to mine. Right, so. is, okay, be, Channel 5? Basically, it was the news and something was happening that was pertinent to the situation. That's But it, this is good, friends. People got a bit lost in um, in the... <clears throat> how, to, how to phrase this? People got a bit distracted by the Fassbender uh, penis in Shame, but I think what they missed, the bigger picture, was here is a man actually using the loo in a film. 
<laughs> I don't think there, we'd ever seen no, that there, before. There, there are many. Well, in comedies, you see that people are using the loo. Comedy, comedy, and dumb and dumb style. In gritty indies, you see people using the loo sometimes. Vincent Vega uses the loo many times in Pulp That's Fiction. That's true. You do actually see okay, it in The Butler. You're right. No. If, you, if you go to watch The Butler this weekend, you get to see... Leave Schreiber yes, that's on the true. John that's a moment. asking for a small glass of prune juice whilst his two dogs uh, nestle uh, underneath his legs. All I could think about watching that scene was it's not going to work that fast. I know, what a stupid president. Come on, president. Uh, Which he's president? He's Lyndon, uh, Lyndon Johnson. B. Johnson. Yes, Johnson. Uh, anyway, let's go to the next question, otherwise this will be the TV Tropes podcast. Uh, next question is uh, an email question from Cy Woodhall, who asks, Dear Empire, there are many examples of movie stars. Then he gives us some in brackets. Peter Sellers, Orson Welles, Gene Hackman at Time of Press, who didn't exactly conclude their careers with something befitting their station. Yes, Gene Hackman, welcome to Mooseport. What the hell is that about? But which movie greats signed off with an appropriately great movie? Orson Welles' uh, penultimate film was Transformers the movie, so he was close to close to signing off with a... <laughs> with a great. With a great, but not <laughs> quite his final film was someone to love uh which i haven't seen and i don't think is one that's going to trouble the archivist particularly uh, another couple to mention that didn't have much luck with their final picks raul julia with uh, street fighter of course that great classic and um and sean connery who we've talked about many times here but on a more upbeat You're, final note you are referring to sir billy right Ah, yes. because of course, after Chris mentioned it on the podcast the other day, I was editing the podcast as I do, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to watch the trailer for Sir Billy. It looks like a toilet duck advert. Is it's this mm. 3D animation set in Scotland, and it is honestly like someone's taken morph and thrown him into a CGI mangle. I think so. You do toilet duck commercials a disservice. Why would you come out of retirement for that? Wait, wait. Doesn't make any sense to me. It's to do with Scotland. Patriotism. Oh, patriotism. He's a proud tax paying Scot. From Los Angeles. So Henry Fonda won an Oscar for On Golden Pond. He yeah. wasn't well enough to collect it. But I think probably, for me, the greatest final performance is Peter Finch in Network. Oh, that's an amazing A role, role that may also have previously have gone to Henry Fonda. Mm. Uh, Peter Finch eventually got it. And he was not well on the set. He had heart problems. And I don't think that Sidney Lumet knew about that at the time. Um, and I was reading that his famous Mad as Hell uh, monologue speech... He collapsed in the middle of, and uh, he only did two takes of it because obviously he wasn't really well enough to continue at that point. And that scene, as it as it appears in the film, it comprises of the second half of the first take and the first half of the second take. Wow. So, um, yeah, a real sort of movie a movie monument really to Peter Finch in his in his final role. I've got others if you want me to go on. <laughs> I can stop. There's an interesting. Uh distinction to be made though Peter Sellers and Orson Welles obviously died mm. uh, but Gene Hackman retired Sean Connery retired there's still hope so are there any other great great actors or actresses who just retired and just melted away from the public eye and left themselves with great films Rick Moranis Rick Moranis also retired but he's back he's, he's back back back, back yeah. Grace Kelly Grace Kelly Grace course. Kelly's final role was High Society three months before she became Princess Grace. Princess Grace of Nicole Kidmanland. Yes, absolutely. That's a pretty cool. An one. example of uh, a man who died um, just like just before almost doing the perfect last film was John Candy, because in 1993 he did Cool Runnings, which is an amazing piece of cinema, wonderful <laughs> stuff, just just brilliant. You don't need me to tell you how great it is. But then you know he had a posthumous movie that came out after obviously he passed away, as what makes sense with the use of the word posthumous. But his final film was Wagons East, mm. uh, and he died during the filming of that. And it is unfortunately a bit rubs. Mm. I have some uh, contenders here in terms of directors. 
It's maybe worth mentioning Kislowski, Three Colours Red, was his last film, which is a pretty good note to go out on. And John Huston, his last film was The Dead, which is virtually the only film that the RTE guide gives five stars to. It's really, really? funny. Genuinely, if you look at your RTE guide every Christmas, this is the Irish equivalent of Radio Times. Um, uh, the RTE guide. The RTE guide. And you, you read it every Christmas and there'll be like Casablanca, four stars, E.T., four stars, you know, <laughs> Citizen Kane, four stars, The Dead, five stars. I think maybe because it's a James Joyce adaptation mm. set in Dublin, but in, it is a very good film. I'm, then, just, I'm not sure it's the only five star film either. By the same virtue, they'd be giving Glenn Rowe five stars. Well, that wouldn't make so much sense. Okay, I think that's a reference only about four people have got. Anyway, <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, it's, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because uh, a lot of great uh, actors have been looking at you know, Jimmy Stewart and Humphrey Bogart. Their last films weren't that great, sadly. You don't really want to be that morbid and talk about people who died prematurely, mm. the Heath Ledgers of this world. Although his last film was The Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus and not The Dark Knight. Uh, James Gandolfini's last film will be uh, Animal Rescue coming out next year, the Tom yeah. Hardy movie, and not... For example, enough said. Enough said. The great John Cazale, who's who made something like six films, all of them five star classics. Uh, he died so young, so prematurely, but uh, he went out with with an absolute great Nadir Hunter. Deer Hunter, he was very sick mm-hmm. on as well, wasn't he? Um, yeah, and they had to work around him. They had to work around yeah. him. Yeah. James Dean, same thing. Uh, James Dean, of course. Giant was his last film. Yeah, um, but uh, an astonishing one to finish on. I mean, people who, who you know did have a a good long life. Uh, hopefully, uh, Paul Newman, his last film technically in terms of voice work was Cars but his last film on screen was Road to Perdition either of those that's okay that's not not disgraceful Audrey Hepburn went out with Always which is not Steven Spielberg's best work but it's still you know fine yeah those are okay absolutely what does the RTE guy give it (laughs) probably three probably three Thanks for your questions. You can, of course, get in touch with us via the usual channels. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Yeah, Nathan joined Twitter this week. I saw. That's very exciting. I know. I think I think that means that uh, finally the, the the last bugle has sounded and <laughs> the walls of Twitter are about to fall down. For those who don't know, who's Ian Nathan? Ian Nathan is our executive editor and uh, a mainstay of Empire Magazine for almost 20 years Mate. and uh, the author of many books including The Terminator Fault and The Alien Fault Should you be desirous of following him on Twitter what would you where would you, you would follow to? him at at Ian Nathan 2 because there's already another Ian Nathan on Twitter Outrageous. although be quick for already after joining Twitter for no more than three hours he pronounced I'm getting bored with it already so you never know what he'll you never be know addicted what you might in no get. time just because he you know doesn't like the internet I think this this Absolutely. will win him over but we are at Emperor Magazine you can use the hashtag Emperor Podcast otherwise we won't see your questions you can Facebook us uh, we will get to the Facebook question next week we didn't have time for it this week sadly and you can email us as well podcast at empireonline.com okay time for the first interview now Forrest Whitaker is one of the finest actors working today and has the Oscar for his role as Idi Amin in The Last King of Scotland to prove it but he's consistently impressed over a long diverse and very eclectic career that's included the likes of The Crying Game Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai First Daughter which he directed and even Battlefield Earth Ali and Phil went along to talk to him about all of that and his slightly Oscar nominated turn as the eponymous hero of Lee Daniels True Life Tale Lee Daniels the butler enjoy it is our absolute pleasure to have Forrest Whitaker here in the Empire Podcast booth if we want to call it that Uh, I spoke to you a couple of months ago at Cannes Mm -hmm. for Zulu and I was the odd guy who was asking you about South African slang and I also talked to you about one of my favourite scenes and one of my favourite movies which is you in The Colour of Money Mm. It was cool I mean it was great I mean I I wasn't expecting that Zulu was going to close the festival so that was uh, it was a great sort of gift there was two movies there because I had Fruitvale Station that that also uh, 
fortunately, Ryan won an award there for that. And then, and then Zulu, it was a great time. Well, not too bad on the south coast of France. <laughs> I suppose my first question would be, you're an Oscar-winning actor. Mm. I heard you had to audition for The Butler. I did. I mean, I think, you know, Lee, Lee, they've been trying to make this movie for a long time. And he had Oprah already in the cast. And, and uh, they wanted, I guess they, they call it now, like, nicely, a uh, relationship read or a chemistry mm. read or something like that. Mm. But in all effects, I was auditioning for the part. And, and uh, by the end of the audition, they, they decided that they would let me do the part. So. <laughs> They'd let you. Yeah. Did you know Oprah reasonably well before before that? Had you I, met? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... I you know, when I did The Last King of Scotland, she had called me and asked to have a dinner for me, you know, you know, so she made this really special dinner and invited some of my friends and her friends and got together uh, before the awards and all mm. that kind of stuff. And that's how we first got to know each other. And then after that, we were trying to work together, but we could never find a way. Uh, and this was the first time. That's pretty nice. So mm-hmm. she organized like a dinner in your honor to celebrate mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it was great. It was uh, uh, in Santa Barbara and... Uh, I was I was thrown. She had done all these special things. She made this amazing book with like these photographs, and she decorated the table with photographs from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It was like wow, you know. I mean, she's a really generous person. Did she make potato salad? Because <laughs> this is a, this is a this is a character uh, in the movie. Yeah, in the movie, in right. the butler, we should explain that 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 your wife Oprah yeah. Oprah um, uh, makes a great potato salad. She does. She 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 has all these little dishes that she makes, and she does put special little ingredients or special herbs in it. And she's always commenting on it throughout the film. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I read in you did a recent roundtable with the Hollywood Reporter, mm-hmm. an actors roundtable, where you were talking about some of the auditions that you've done, and mm-hmm. and I don't know if the worst audition or the most memorable audition. And you were talking about how you you you've been on stage and you just fallen through the stage. Oh, because. Because I don't know why that happened, but tell us about it. No, you know, it was, it was, I was, I had just learned how to do this, uh, a choli dance, you know, uh, and I was on stage and the wood that they had gotten was really sort of rotten, you know, and, and so we were moving through it and there was like, so then ultimately as we were stomping on the stage, all of us, it was like, yeah, uh, parts of it fell through and I was, and you yeah. included. Yeah, that was, that was during uh, the sequence in The Last King of Scotland where I say the giant speech. Yeah. Oh really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Getting into the zone, fourth. <laughs> Didn't yeah. even notice. Just yeah. so in the moment. <laughs> yeah. I I read someone. I've got a couple of absolutely crazy facts that have just. I can't believe them. We have a thing called the IMD bunker, which uh-huh. is if you go to the IMDb, there is such nonsense on there uh-huh. in the trivia section. And this is one thing which I need you to confirm or deny for me, okay? And I'm sorry if this comes across as stupid, but it says that you were down for the part of Sawyer in Lost. It's not true. Well, I don't know. You know what? I was directing a movie for Fox, and then that rumor started coming out. So maybe they approached my agents, and they like said I wasn't available. You know, but no one ever came to me to talk to me about it. You know, and and then later when I was I was doing something, oh, Vantage Point, I was with Matthew Fox. Yeah, and and people were talking about it a lot then too. But nah. no. I mean, I've I've only seen the first two seasons of Lost, but I just wouldn't have seen that one. Sawyer as you would have been quite an, a, a different, I think. TV show, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but hey, let's talk about the butler because mm-hmm. it's a terrific performance. Thank you. You you play uh, Cecil Gaines, mm-hmm. who is a butler at the White House, and it straddles many generations. It's a family story, and it straddles generations of U.S. political history, mm-hmm. which gives the film gives you the opportunity to play opposite some amazing actors. Yes, um, Alan Rickman is there as Reagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Marsden is a really good JFK. 
Yes. Um, Robin Williams plays Eisenhower. But they're all different. They all obviously have different acting approaches, those, those actors. Sure. I was talking to Lee Daniels and he was saying that John Cusack, who plays Nixon, there's, there's a moment when you, take a, mm-hmm. when you took a martini glass into Nixon and he's listening to the Watergate tapes. Uh-huh. And, and, and he just stayed listening to the tapes whilst you stood there with the martini glass in your hand for like five minutes. Yeah, yeah. What is yeah. that like to be on the end of, not knowing that's coming? You know, I was just in character and I was totally, you know, and, and it's actually very strenuous being a butler in the first place, you know. But, but uh, exactly, <laughs> you know, the arm, the arm gestures. But I, I, I was standing there and, and, and John chose to, to ignore me as he was obsessing about this tape and stuff. And, and the scene just continued on. Actually, working with him was really an amazing pleasure because... He's so caught up, and, and that scene was was quite different than I had ever imagined it to be. There was a sort of degree of madness, of it, you know what I mean, <laughs> that uh, that I really loved. I, I think the movie was, I was really fortunate because I got to work with so many great actors, and all of them like were approaching their work in completely different ways. And so as an artist, it's, it's a gift. That must keep it fresh, fresh for you mm. and give you the opportunity to kind of add new things, but it's quite a... Short shoot, wasn't it? I believe so. Very short. We it must shot, have been intense. There's like Constantine, all those different techniques and different styles of acting in. Yeah, because they, would, the presidents would come in for a couple of days, you know, uh, and then it would be like a new administration came in because they come in with a new group of actors and they have a different <laughs> approach and they'd shift the room a little bit, change the carpet, and, the bell ring, and it would be like John's here, <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> Robin's off. Which is, but uh, that's what was helpful to me, though. I mean, with Marsden, mm. relaxing. I mean, it's like kind of ease about the character and. And I'd work with Robin, but he was, you know, he was he was different. He was so quiet and simple, you know. So it was it was, it was uh, and all of them though, because with Cuba, it was that was a great thing about the character was working like at home with David and with with Oprah. It's one universe, you know. Mm. And then I'd be with the guys with Cuba and and with uh, uh, Lenny Kravitz, and that'd be another. And then you go over with all these different presidents, and each time was a separate sort of experience. And I was just trying to serve. You know, mm. his brother, you know, it looked hot. <laughs> I know you shot in this in Louisiana mm-hmm. in the summer, and you're wearing a lot of yes, a lot of tail suits, mm-hmm. a lot of, and also a spandex kind of disco suit at one point, which we loved. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Oprah was great in that scene, right? Oh, she was dancing in the Soul Train, and, and she gives me that outfit. You know, tell me you guys wore those outfits on the at the rap party. No, no, <laughs> but you know, she told me that somebody on a TV show like wore it for Halloween. Like with the, with the, yeah, with the afro and the outfit and stuff. That's kind of cool. I was like, it was a strange moment in the screening where I was like, hey, can I stop the projector, please? Because I need to see that this is actually happening. This is incredible. <laughs> and also there's, I mean, obviously there was a ceremonial putting on of the gloves as a butler in the White yeah, House. Yeah, yeah. Did you get to keep the gloves? Because they seem quite important. I didn't get to keep the gloves. I'm trying to think what, what I kept. Uh... Eisenhower's painting? No, <laughs> no. I think there was a, like a watch. You know, uh, which is the watch that I had gotten from my father. Mm. You know, that was it was kind of one of the things I kept and stuff. Mm. I was wondering whether you happened to, you know, watch a lot of West Wing or got yourself into kind of like presidential rigmarole, that sort of thing. Were you watching other things that were set in the White House or did you just come at this fresh? I came in it like I had a lot of help, you know, um, from I had, a, I had someone teaching me how to become a butler. And it was uh, Stephen Ferry was working with me on that and. So we spent weeks, and he stayed with me, actually, you know, uh, when I was in New Orleans for a while. And uh, then I had, like, sort of 
dramaturge like showing me all the difference all the photographs of like the way things were set up in the different eras and stuff mm. and the table changes and everything like that so i had all these different individuals you know working with me and stuff and then i talked to his son and talked to different people and slowly uh, after i got all this information the character yeah. formed this is one of the things that that really fascinates me about being an actor because parallel to the, the roles you're playing you're also learning all these amazing life yeah. skills i mean yeah. you you, you learn pool for the color of money. I mean, yeah. forgive me if you knew some of these things before the films, but on Bird, you you, you kind of you honed your musical skills. Yeah. You were an American football player as a kid. Yes. And you played in Richmond High, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, and here you probably you could probably make an awesome martini now, I'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I, can make, I can make a good martini. I can make a really good tea. What's the secret to a good martini? You've James Bond <laughs> school? No, you know what? I, Emil, you know Emil? The guy, he, there was a younger, you when I was young, like 16 years old. Oh, yeah. He's the one who focused mostly on martinis. You <laughs> notice I, I, I really didn't do much of it. No. I would do like uh, the, the teas with the president. The first time I went in, I was, and it's like, you know, boiling it to a rolling boil and getting it and warming the cup with the water and warming the kettle with the water and all these different things. Three to five minutes, you, you, you cook it, no later. Want to make sure it doesn't stew. It's like a whole, whole process that they were bringing me through. Do you understand the English the English now a bit better and our weird obsession with tea? I do, actually. I mean, <laughs> I, and and, and I, I, I like that. You know, it's, I like the, the Japanese version of it, too. You know, it's, mm. it, it's beautiful. And you were, you were working here, of course, we've mentioned it before, with Robin Williams. Was it strange to look back on your work with him in Good Morning Vietnam and just think, this is a totally different kettle of fish. Like, this is... I could have never seen this coming. Mm. He's got this amazing comb over. He's got these kind of like flex spots. And yeah. was there a bit where you just had to go, this is... When I first saw him, yeah. Because I, I wasn't used to seeing him that way. And it was like a frailness, but like a strength about him. And then when he was like doing his paintings, he was so meticulous and quiet, like meditative. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't seen that. You know, with Robin, though, uh, when we would be alone, he would be very, very simple and quiet. It was like as if when he was with large groups of people, like they became a stimulus, like there would be more input or more data and like he'd start to put it out. Yeah. You know, it was different. Was he, was he quite a sort of vociferous extrovert character on the set of Good Morning Vietnam? Only in crowds. Really? Not when we were by ourselves. When we were just me and him, really? he was very quiet, and, you know, but when we would be with people, I mean, he's pretty brilliant. I mean, he would like come up with things like on the spot. You would, someone would be reading something from a paper in the truck and by the time we got out and we were somewhere, he would have incorporated all that information into some new thing and it was it was amazing to watch. He's brilliant. Mm. Yeah. I mean, those monologues that he delivers yeah. on the radio and, and in some of the set-piece scenes as well. Yeah. How difficult are they to do as an actor? You know, because it's such a lot of information, mm. a lot of the cadence of, of the way that he says it as well. I, I, for him, it seemed, I don't know, it's, I th- it felt like the way his system works. For me, I don't know if I could do it. You know, I mean, he, he would like start talking and start using initials. And, you, you know, just in initials, he'd be talking, you know, and, and, and then you listen, think about it later and you say, wow, that made sense. You know, it's like, it is yeah. like, <laughs> you know, it's like how, how do you do that? But uh, it's something, some facility he has. That, yeah. You know. We were talking, we were chatting about one of our favorite films, Platoon on the Way Over. Oh. And Oliver Stone's obviously has his JFK kind of yes. in the news at the moment as well. So we were just casting our mind back to that and, and an amazing backstory of the shoot in the Philippines that you guys were all involved in as, as mm-hmm. young actors, mm-hmm. which must have been fun and tough. Uh, there's this, this um, story of how you all had to call each other by your character names mm-hmm. on and off set. Mm-hmm. And I just hoped that you still, when you see some of the other cast members in passing, that you still do that. <laughs> 
I think I every once in a while I might think of one guy or another that way. I see those guys. I see you know they're all a lot of them are still working and doing doing really well. And Keith David moved out to L.A. and so many of them. Yeah, yeah. We spoke to John McGinley oh, earlier yeah. in the year, and he was saying that you guys were. It was so tough to be on set because it was two hours outside of is it Manila and, and yeah. in the jungle, and it was yeah. and you often didn't have scenes, so you'd be at the hotel, and then you realized that. If you weren't on set, you weren't going to get the extra stuff they might throw you, Dale Dye or Oliver Stone might throw you into a scene. Oh, it's true. I mean, John was like a loyalist. He was like one of those who was like, you know, gung-ho, you know, and, and so he was always like kind of in the mix and him and Oliver were very close and they had their, because Oliver has a very unique way of working, you yeah. know what I mean? And, uh, me, I was a little to the side, you know, I, I, I didn't stay in the hotel. I moved to an apartment okay. in the middle of Balik Balik and... It was quite different for me. They, 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 everyone became soldiers. I think it was from the deprivation of the first few weeks where we weren't allowed to, to, uh, to eat and only a canteen of water, and we were sleeping out in the middle of the jungle. You know, that was the first thing that Oliver did was he, they brought us out to the jungle, gave us these shovels, and just said, "Dig," and then we dug these holes, and then they said, "This is where you will be sleeping for the next few weeks," and that's the way it began. You know what I mean? And uh, it stayed that way all the way up until we started shooting. We left the field and we were on the bus, and all of a sudden, one of the sergeants came on and started screaming, Out, out, out! And all of us grabbed our weapons and ran off, started crossing the river, and that's when Oliver first started shooting the movie. Ooh. Wow, I guess Lee Daniels wasn't doing that in the beginning of this. Oh, here's a shovel. <laughs> like go, go dig some plants. Yeah. We'll, we'll put, put them in later. But you know, Lee is like, man, he's, he's, he's so passionate and so, you know, he, he motivates people. I mean, look at the cast he brought together, I think, because. He has this way of working with artists that like make them really find the truth in a way that I think is really special. And at times you'd be working with him, and you know he'd just be so emotionally present, like he, you know, he'd just be weeping and crying if the scene was sad. You go to him, and you're trying to talk, and he's like trying to control himself and explain what he would like to see happen next, and you mm. know, or laughing. Or it was just yeah. a, it was a really unique experience. You know, I've, I haven't had that before. I uh, I kind of love the poster for this because it's a picture of you looking away from the poster mm-hmm. and it's just your back and a list of names. It's just, it's as if to say... <laughs> Everyone know, is in this movie. It, think of somebody, they're probably in this film and uh, <laughs> they may or may not be a president, so look forward to that. Um, they're probably I, there, just in the crowd. Just look, keep looking. Keep yeah, there looking. he is. <laughs> is Arnold Schwarzenegger right there? Um, you, you, have been, you have been in so many different films playing so many different like, types of characters and I think... I don't think you've quite been been earmarked as any particular person. I mean, obviously, the shield has maybe changed that a little bit, and think mm. people think of you that way. What is the kind of role that you get offered most when people bring scripts to you, or are you kind of more of a open agent? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because there's really no set character types. You know, they're always so different. You know, uh, like the next number of movies I play, even like the next movie that comes out, I play a preacher, a singing preacher. And then after that, I play a sheriff of this little Pennsylvania town. And I play a prisoner who comes out of, uh, you know, jail and is converted to Islam. And he's being pushed by the police. And, and I play like this guy who kidnaps his life coach, you know, uh, and tortures him actually and to make him confess to all his darkest crimes. Mm. So the next number of films, I, and you know, I don't know, they just... Just different types of movies, different parts, you know what I mean? And I've been really fortunate. I think I'm attracted to continuing to, to learn and try mm. something different. 
you say you're a, you were a singing preacher in this film coming up. I read mm-hmm. somewhere that you, in the 1980s, were on a singing tour in England. I was, yeah. What are your memories of England back then? It was, is, does it seem so different when you come back now? It is different. I mean, it was the first time I had ever been, you know, sort of out of the country, you know, and, and we were singing in these different churches and stuff at school. And actually, I was really seduced by the place. It was so romantic to me. I was trying to stay. You know, oh, really? Yeah, I tried to get a job. I went to those workstations. I don't know what they call them, where you go in and job centers. Yeah, the yeah. job centers. Yeah, and uh, try to get a to get a gig, but I couldn't because I didn't have any kind of papers or anything like that. But uh, so it held like a great romanticism for me. And in fact, I guess uh, later when I started when I was studying acting, I, I went to a school. One of the schools I went to was the Drama Studio of London. Oh, really? Yeah, at, at Berkeley, Peter Layden School. And was there for a while. Actually, like, uh, it gave me a lot of, uh, I mean, it helped me in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. You can come back anytime you like (laughs) and stay. Yeah, it would be great. We can store you out with a dukedom. I love the idea of you walking into a job center now and going, you got got anything for me? Any... I was really trying. (laughs) I was really trying. (laughs) 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 Just nothing, nothing. (laughs) I I really want to ask you about Fast Times at Ridgemont High because it's a film that people love. Mm-hmm. A lot, and that was your first, wasn't it? And mm. well, pretty much, yeah, first was. first big screen appearance, and, and and a bit of trivia that you were one of three best actors to appear in that film, alongside Sean Penn and Nicolas mm. Cage. Yeah, Nick Cage. It was a lot of actors in there. Jennifer Jason Lee was in there. Uh, Anthony Edwards, you know, yeah. bunch of bunch of people. It was, but it started our, a lot of our, our careers. You know, mm. me and Sean and and, uh, and and Nicholas had a small small role. Eric Stoltz. Yeah. They were all in the movie. Great cast. And you yeah. wear a great shell suit in that in that film, <laughs> in that movie. As it was an fun. Angry, angry uh, what, linebacker, I guess? Exactly. In the high school linebacker? Exactly. Do yeah. people still come up and want to talk to you about Fast Times? Which people is the do film bring that... up Fast Times to me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, somebody wrote something on the net the other day about, like, well, my favorite is Fast Times. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you see Ghost Dog. You see Last King's Gone. Talking of of. Go, of uh, Ghost Dog, Jim Jarmusch famously wrote the part for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that must be, you know, a, a rare blessing to have something that's kind of tailored for you. Can, you yeah. can't really turn that down, can you? No, I mean, well, it started because I used to play around with my Super 8 camera and there was a Super 8 sound place in, uh, in Burbank and he was finishing a movie there too and we met each other and we were talking in the parking lot. Mm. We said, okay, well, it'd be great to work together. <laughs> and um, a year later, he called me and said, I had this idea. And then it just proceeded to him like, coming into L.A. and, like, sitting down and talking. So we would, like, have these meetings for four, five, six hours just talking about it. And uh, and then he one day he said, okay, I'm going to go away and write it. And uh, then he went up to his house in the north of New York and came back with a script. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Great movie as well. Not bad for a chance meeting and a conversation in a car park. That's pretty good yeah, result. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's been... Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Uh, a real privilege and a pleasure. Uh, the Butler is out right now. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully see you soon for The Butler 2. <laughs> Return of The Butler. Um, anyway, yes, thanks again. Thank you. Movie news time. I have, first of all, very, very joyous and fantabulous news, uh, which is that uh, they are planning to make a musical of The Princess Bride. Regular listeners may know that I am partial to a little bit of The Princess Bride now and again. And so the news that it is being made into uh, a planned Broadway musical or Broadway play isn't quite decided whether it's going to be a musical or a play yet. I would I would guess musical. Um, 
is is fantastic news. So it's being made by Disney, who of course have made you know The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. They've had huge numbers of um, big stage successes. Um, and I think this is this is a very good thing. You know, they're talking to William Goldman, making sure that they have kind of his approval and him on board, um, beca- partly because there was a previous attempt that foundered on rights issues, but also because, you know, he's the guy who came up with the whole thing and knows it best. So hooray for everything, frankly. Inconceivable. No, conceivable. Oh, excellent. Phil, what you got? I really want to talk about George Clooney's flame war with Russell Crowe, but I don't think that, <laughs> that falls under the under the. It involves it involves coffee makers. They were fighting outside my flat last night at three yeah, in the morning. Books of poetry. Matt Damon's probably going to get sucked into it as some sort of arbitrator. Banksy Moon's going to get involved. It's <laughs> yeah. really great. <laughs> Matt I Damon's parachute. So the surprised. Yeah, you want to mess with my friends? You mess with Damon and Pitt. He's got a rolled up magazine. No, he's got forty odd foot of grunts, and I've got Damon and Pitt. Let's go. And then something to do with basketball and Leonardo DiCaprio. I can't even get my head around. So it's all a bit vague. But uh, I would say that it's unusual. If you want more information, there was a big interview I think in one of the men's mags with George Clooney, where he was unusually indiscreet about this stuff. He pointed out that Russell Crowe had sent him a book of poetry and some of his music. I don't know if that was a gift of love or more punishment. I don't know. It was an apology, apparently. But... Right. Well. My real news story is that we talked about it last week. The Marvel Netflix uh, quartet of TV miniseries, followed by a giant TV miniseries event, has some writers on board already. And one of them is Drew Goddard, who is a lifelong fan of Daredevil and is writing Daredevil currently. Drew Goddard, of course, an erstwhile podcast guest here. Um, He is an old mucker of Joss Whedon. He has worked on TV series like Buffy and Angel. Um, He was also involved in Cloverfield, obviously, as a screenwriter. And when we talked to him, he was helping Spielberg with Robopocalypse, a film which is uh, in something of a turnaround state at the moment. So he's got time on his hands to... uh, And, of course, he directed Cabin in the Woods, which is what he was here to talk about. So, yeah, he is the man that's taking on this. I think that's good news. The things he's done have been very, very good. Uh, He's a very smart man, a good screenwriter, director and uh, we'll have good all-round vision he is quoted as saying that um you're talking to the guy who had quotes from daredevil painted upon his bedroom walls growing up which to me sounds like the sort of thing that really piss off your parents but it does give him you know serious kind of fanboy um status i hope it was in braille good point <laughs> good point i like your thinking uh, also think he speaks in braille yes but if it's on your wall it would make sense that you could feel it in braille yeah, he didn't blind himself That's is a sort of tribute true. to the character. So I think it could be okay that he could is see Is he going to be the showrunner or the writer? Because I want him to be the showrunner. I think I don't think that... No, he won't be the showrunner. Um, he's been signed up to, to write it at this point. You think I, he might be the showrunner? I don't know. It's interesting. The, the very fact that they're signing up people to seemingly write all 13, I guess, one-hour episodes or close to one hour, 45 minutes. Yeah. That seems unless, to me that they're going to be they're, showrunners. Unless they're head writers, you know, kind of thing. They're overseeing the team. I mean, you know, Russell T. Davies, for example, was obviously he was showrunner as well on Doctor Who. But if you read the book about the making of that show, he basically, you know, came up with concepts, farmed them out, and then actually did a lot of work, I think, when he got a lot of them back in. Um, but, you could, you know, there's there's a, a kind of a grey area, I think, with these particular shows just because they are so... Um, there is a grand master plan for all yeah, of them, I guess, which they have point. to adhere to. I think uh, I think that's a good point. There's a this is a new model for anything really to have Marvel and Netflix in cahoots, in collaboration. It's got to fit into the Kevin Feige master plan. 
and uh, and they've all got to converge into one final miniseries. So I'm sure that that it'll be a new kind of showrunner that this this will kind of pioneer. And it's also worth pointing out that Melissa Rosenberg, erstwhile of Twilight, is working on the Jessica Jones series. I actually think that's a good thing because I think she is a, a, a good screenwriter. I think she did a very good job of turning those books into something even vaguely cinematic. Um, so I, I th- I'm intrigued to see what she does with that. My new story is involving uh, timings and release dates and other such incredibly fun, listenable, toable stuff. Assassin's Creed, sorry, Michael Fassbender, was due to uh, land in June 19th of 2015. It is now swan dive onto the straw cart of August the 7th. Fox and I also plays Paul Feig, Susan Cooper, starring Melissa McCarthy, and wait for this next name, Jason Statham, uh, onto <laughs> yes. May 22nd. That's also in 2015, the same day as Brad Bird's Tomorrowland. Right, we've also got the Secret Service. This is so confusing. This is now going to March the 6th, 2015. That is the Colin Firth and Taron Egerton starring spy thriller by, I was about to say Vince Vaughan, but um, Michael Vaughan. Matthew Vaughan. Matthew Vaughan. Michael um, Vaughan, the former England cricket captain. Yeah, that's my head. Expanded into the movies. Based on the comic by Mark Miller and Dave Gibbons. So that's movie... Essentially, this is the whole list of what's in 2015 right now. Basically, Fox have moved a lot of stuff. They've moved a lot of stuff, but it's all staying in 2015 for the most part. Secret Service has now gone to the slot that Fantastic Four did have, so the newly revivified Fantastic Four will now hit on June the 19th, which will be going up against Pixar's Inside Out. I just want to say the lot was going on in 2015, and this is the full list of movies that are coming out in 2015. Mm. Right. Batman, Superman, or whatever it ends up being called. Star Wars Episode Seven, or whatever it ends up being called, including or not including colon. Avengers, including colon Age of Ultron. Jurassic World, which has had um, a certain Chris Pratt earmarked for a lead role in it, so that's quite exciting. Uh, Ant-Man is also going to get a 2015 release. Uh, Neil Blomkamp's Chappie, as will World of Warcraft, as will Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part Two, and a possibly a fifth Terminator and Legend of Conan. Oh, and Bond 24. It's insane. And breathe. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was excellent. And you didn't even mention... Well, all that has meant that Independence Day 2 has moved into 2016, which is probably right, I guess, ultimately to give Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin more time to realise their vision. Uh, but uh, also, Mission Impossible 5 last night landed like Santa falling off the roof in the Santa Claus on Christmas Day 2015, one week after Star Wars colon... Episode 7, The Colon Wars, Mission Colon, Impossible 5, Colon, whatever that film's going to be called, will open directly against, well, not directly, but going head to head with Star Wars. Very interesting. Can I just say that Roland Emmerich favorited one of my tweets yesterday? <laughs> it's a bit like, really? it's a bit like really? the alien mothership shadow wow. coming over the White House. What was the tweet? Um, he posted a picture of, of uh, from Anonymous, which you think he would have one of it, everyone's forgotten about by now, but no, backstage back behind the scenes and he just wanted to know where it was shot and I knew I can't believe and I knew so I, I said where it was and he liked it and now I've got a friend I can't believe you're bringing up Anonymous you know how it upsets me you love that I love Roland Emmerich I do not love Anonymous the father complex isn't it <laughs> mm-hmm. in fairness that is one with mother complexes do you think that would have been better and if it had been in the dark yeah yeah <laughs> no actually the costumes were the best thing about it no it wasn't that bad we love Roland a lot. And also it uncovered the truth about Shakespeare. Oh my God. I don't think that's I'm going to I'm gonna have to hurt Chris now. Let people know. But just, like, if we do have a fight, just send me a book of poetry to apologise. <laughs> That'd be absolutely fine. But yeah, Mission Impossible 5 is very interesting. I think because um, it's going to be a lot of 
different actors moving around these different franchises in 2015. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are assuming that Simon Pegg, given his relationship with J.J. Abrams, will be in Star Wars in some way, shape or form. But you're also assuming he's going to be in Mission Impossible 5. So will he have to make a choice? Are we... Well, obviously, you know, but you know you know what I mean? You know, if he's in one, can he be in the other and so on and so forth? Can Jeremy Renner be in Mission Impossible 5 and Avengers 2 and presumably the, the newborn, which I'm sure will be in 2015 as well? And also, I mean, J.J. Abrams was a producer on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Yes, it, um, it is a bad robot movie. Yeah, so is is he still involved in Mission Impossible he 5? Is, he and is. so he's got two films in two weeks. He does, he does. I would cray, have thought cray. Simon Pegg would have something to do, at least a cameo in Ant-Man. Yeah, this true. Could, could be a three-way pegathon. A three-way pegathon. That sounds a bit wrong. It does, doesn't it? Will there be actors who are flitting around from franchises, or will some actors have very, very difficult choices to make? I think there's a lot of, pardon the phrase, um, you know, dick swinging going on from studios and production companies. They go, right, 2015 is the one where people are going, right, let's bring our biggest tanks to the field. Like, we are really showing off here. Now, it, there seems to be a kind of a tumble-down effect of, I don't know who it was who first put their flag in the sand... But so Star Wars goes, right, this is when we're coming out December. And then there's been a flurry of other people going, right, this is us now. This is us. This is it. This is going on. I don't know. I think they'll be we're going to run out of money. They'll be shitting themselves, to be honest, because there's going to be some big losses in that in that midst. That's what I'm saying is that people will run out of money to spend on going to see the cinema. Like I can only see that many movies. I run out of cash. Like Mm. as a film fan who likes to see every big film as it comes out. You know, how many Orange Wednesdays tickets can you buy? It's brutal. I mean, November alone has uh, Skyfall going, to, uh, going up against the uh, the final Hunger Games movie. And Ant-Man. Uh, Ant-Man's July now. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Sorry. And there's at least a couple of huge animated movies, including, I think, a Pixar. The Good Dinosaur, I think, is in November 2015 as well. I think it moved. No, that's, 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 that's moved where it's, it's moved, moved to. to. Yeah, yeah. And that that's just a cluster F uck situation waiting to happen mm. and the same thing you know I was looking earlier on at uh, previous release patterns of Star Wars movies and seeing whether anything big has gone up uh, against Star Wars a week after Star Wars and the answer is not really not 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 hugely not looking back to 1999 where obviously everyone ran scared from Phantom Menace uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith less so but still studios tended to stay away from Star Wars and I have to I have to imagine that the anticipation around episode 7 will be huge no Star Wars film has ever made a billion dollars at the box office I think this will be the first to do so uh, as long as obviously they deliver a great product and I think I think they will so why would you then open up another huge movie a week later there's got to be some blinking between now and then there has to be some of these things are going to have to move well, Warcraft I'd imagine would Warcraft, Warcraft ha- I mean yeah with the greatest of respect because I'm you know looking forward to Warcraft and I think Duncan Jones is terrific and I really enjoyed his defiant tweet when, when Star Wars moved on to his date yeah. but bring it um, on nerf herders he said yeah. <laughs> but at the same time like you know g- give yourself some breathing room and, and, and also you know while there is a bit of as you say dick swinging involved I think you know it's in everybody's interest to space these things out a little bit it is in the audience's interest it's in your studio's interest and it's in the interest of the films themselves we shouldn't be running for release dates we should be making sure that the film is absolutely as yeah. it should be and of course there's a battle for screens isn't there there's a finite number of there screens is, and, and also um, a lot of these films are going to be the kind of things they want on IMAX mm. and IMAX is you know there are a limited number of screens that they're, they're building new ones very very fast they're you know getting them out there but 
this is the kind of a lot of these are the kind of films that you want to see on IMAX and you know it is really difficult right now to program your IMAX screens to get all these films onto them even now in 2013 by 2015 it's going to be absolute mayhem it's obviously a year we're all stupidly excited about but I think it'll be a fascinating year from every perspective in terms of Hollywood in terms of what it'll do to the business model what it'll do to Mm. you know the giganticism that's that's taken hold in the last few years um and I, things could change as a result of it, so we'll be curious about that. You say things will change, but it's interesting. Warcraft obviously staked out December 18th first. I imagine it will move. I imagine that Legendary will look at it and go, we're going to get crushed by Star Wars. We're essentially the same demographic. But Mission Impossible knows that Star Wars is opening. <laughs> I love what we talk about these films as if they're sentient. <laughs> and they're choosing these release dates themselves. But um, Paramount knows, obviously, that Star Wars is going to open a week before. And I apologise if I'm boring people's tits off for talking about that. I love this stuff. Um, Paramount knows that Mission Impossible is going to open a week after Star Wars. And they've deliberately placed it there. So... I don't think they're going to blink. I don't think they're going to move that. But it's also interesting. Are you going to get... January in the States is generally seen as a dumping ground for really, really dreadful films. But as December and November load up with bigger and bigger films, are we going to see huge tentpoles move into January for really the first time? Mm. It'd be interesting. And and are we going to see, you know, some of the... Maybe the the Oscar films get squished by this stuff as well. Presumably, there are still going to be Oscar movies in twenty fifteen. I don't think there'll be any left. <laughs> Honestly, I think everyone in Hollywood's busy by that point. Even Meryl Streep will be in Star Wars episode she'll be, seven. Yeah, she'll or be War- things Warcraft. Up. Meryl Streep in Warcraft. Please make this happen. Anyway, obviously she's a huge gamer. I imagine she's. I believe interested. it. But you know, I think uh, we could. End up, how are you going to find screens in New York and LA in that December I to really show want to see your Darth Kramer you know, now. Your contenders? <laughs> <laughs> Darth Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> that would be just. There's going to be it's, it's good scope for like a bridesmaids type counter programming special in that space. Definitely, I'm oh. sure somebody will be thinking. Yeah, some female leads outside of the Hunger Games would be nice. I would like some video on demand stuff coming through where people going, well, yeah, go to cinema, great, or don't, and just it is take it from us. Like have things like Drinking Buddies and movies that were relatively indie, and just go right here they are. We're releasing it on all formats. Come get some. Yeah, I, th- I think one thing we're missing from that year, um, and obviously there will be some Pixar and some DreamWorks movies that are, are original concepts, but it's original concepts. Mm. Where's the gravity of 2015 so far? Where's the uh, Inception? or the Interstellar well, so I think we need at the moment you know it's great for fans of franchises and sequels and video games and whatnot. you're going to finally see your thing on the big screen but is there someone out there who's going to persuade a studio to go okay 150 million dollars in this one please what's interesting I mean some of this is secular but, but I think what's interesting is like looking at next year we've got a lot of vaguely original properties we've got a lot of you know adaptations of books stuff like The Fault in Our Stars is something that hasn't quite been done before you know there, there, are, there are interesting new things being tried there if those do well, then what we might see is 2015, yes, is, is dominated by these enormous sequels. But 2016 then again becomes maybe something for slightly new, newer and, and more different and more daring films. Th- those sort of films don't crop up on our radar as far off, obviously, as the big franchises. Yeah, they're harder so to see coming. I mean, Gravity, if, if Gravity was coming out in 2006, 2015... Like right now, they probably wouldn't know exactly what film it was going to be anyway themselves. We, we were talking about Gravity a couple of years ago, but only because we were excited by Quadron. I love the way you say that. Yeah. With the authentic Spanish pronunciation. Oh, yeah. uh, okay, I think that's pretty much it for movie news. I think we've exhausted everything uh, Hollywood has to throw at us. They won't have a lot to throw at us next week. Oh, no, they will, because Thanksgiving's two weeks' time. Yeah. Two weeks' time. All right, okay. 
Second interview now, and fans of Downton Abbey would be pleased to hear yet another member of the cast is breaking into movies, following in the footsteps of Jessica Brown Findlay, Dan Stevens, uh, who was cast this week as the bad guy in Light of the Museum 3. Another 2015 release, I believe. And of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> He's the bad guy? Really? Yeah, he was in Downton Abbey. Oh, right, okay, I thought you meant he was in Light of the Museum 3. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's in the Christmas special of Downton, isn't he? And uh, Lily James, who's Cinderella in Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, currently shooting. Uh, Alan Leach, best known as nice guy Tom Branson, can be seen this week in the improvised horror film In Fear, where he plays against type by basically being a sociopathic nutjob. He popped into the pod booth to talk to, well, me, on my lonesome, because all these guys were too scared. Enjoy. Uh, delighted to welcome to the Emperor Podcast now, the star of In Fear and uh, Downton Abbey, which just finished. Uh, Alan Leach, welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having oh. me. <laughs> no worries. Uh, so, yeah, just finished Downton Abbey on Sunday, and now you've, just wrapped up, your yeah. change of pace happens within five days. You're going to scare <laughs> yeah. the crap out of Downton Abbey fans. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> get them in the cinemas, and then they'll be like, hang on, this isn't a gentle, <laughs> gentle jaunt through 1920. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. But uh, In Fear, I mean, is it even a spoiler to say that you're in the film? Uh how much can we talk about? I, 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 I spoke to Jeremy, the director, about this, and he said, let's just go for it. Let's let them know that okay. you're in it. Yeah. And then I said, let them know everything. And he went, let them know as much as you think you need to, which is very similar to his directing style, by the way, <laughs> that idea that he just goes, uh, you know, just go for it. Just, you know, see what, see what happens, which is very much what happened when we were filming the movie In Fear. Yeah, yeah, you didn't know. Well, you knew. What was going to happen? Yeah, I knew the whole plot. I knew the yeah. whole plot. Jeremy brought me in for for my audition and said, "Look, I have this idea. It's gonna. It's about a, a young couple who don't know each other very well, and they get lost in Ireland. Uh, they're on their way to a music festival, and things start going very wrong. They keep getting lost, and automatically, I was like, okay, it's interesting.' And then he said, "I want to play on the idea of fear and trust mm-hmm. to start with in the movie, and then I also want to bring in this kind of malevolent force, and mm-hmm. I want I want you to come in and play that." Or, well, at the time he was like, let's see if you can play it. So he made me, you know, this audition where I improvised, you know, telling this story that he had a kind of mythical Irish story. And it was just really fascinating, the idea that he just had a, a skeleton of a script, a, basically a blueprint. And he said, I want you to, you know, really drive the story. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting to me because I'd never done anything like that. And the fact that the, those two actors are going to be kept in the dark, they didn't really know what was happening. And he wanted to keep that because he wanted all those emotions to be raw and all those reactions to be raw as well. So whenever in the movie you see someone get a fright, he always used the first take, which was them actually being scared out well, of their wits. Because yeah. otherwise you set yourself, you know, it's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and there is something in it as well, which I think adds to the fact that it's very uncomfortable. He left in so many moments that are genuinely just happen in the movie. Like a couple of times they go for their seatbelts and mm-hmm. they jam. Yeah. And Jeremy put them in because that would happen, you know, and, and, and it makes it it makes it even more tense. So how did, you know, Jeremy, you, did you know anything about this movie when you went into the audition? Did you know that it was going to be semi-improvised, I'm saying? Uh, because yeah. obviously there was a script there, but in terms of dialogue, I don't know how much there was on the page. There was very, very little dialogue. Okay. Uh, he, again, kind of, rather than have dialogue, he more had a, a trajectory that he wanted the story to go on. And in the scene, we'd sit down and we had a week's rehearsals and he would he would rehearse with the two guys on their own. And then I come in in the afternoon and he'd explain to me how they felt they would react in certain situations. Now, when it actually came to filming, it very rarely was the case that they reacted in the way that they did in rehearsals. And then I'd come in in the afternoon and I'd sit with uh, John Croker and Jeremy, the director, Mm. and we'd we'd rehearse and I'd do my part of basically the other side of the scene. But they never knew 
what like they were just put in these situations they were more thinking it was a team building thing for the two actors to kind of get to know each other they didn't know that we were actually trying to second guess what how they'd react on the day okay yeah but you didn't meet uh, Ian DeCastiger or Alice no, Engler. but I used to watch them have coffee. Yeah, which is which is really, really creepy. And it was, but it, and it kind of felt, but I have to say there was something bizarrely exciting about the fact that I knew that I was going to completely mess with these two guys emotionally uh-huh. and sometimes physically, like, uh, you know, in the movie. And they had no idea and I was sitting across from them having a coffee and one time Alice looked over and she just clocked me. So I got up and just finished my coffee and walked off and I thought I'm blown she's seen me and I asked her about it and she said no I don't even remember that it's amazing how you know you're so heightened you know? and I was like Jeremy's gonna kill me yeah, <laughs> yeah. did you take it beyond uh, looking at them watching coffee or no I didn't coffee didn't fall yeah, in the home I, c- I couldn't get into either of their bathrooms <laughs> <laughs> got those double locks on it's really, it's really tricky you know <laughs> you know painting myself the same colour you know magnolia <laughs> sitting up against the shower wall <laughs> but in terms of uh, Alice recognising you because I spoke to uh, all three of you for uh, previously and um, Alice said that uh, she didn't watch Downton no. So she didn't know who you were yeah. when you got in the car. Yeah, which is Which, is, a, which is, I guess, a, a boon. Obviously, you want people to watch Downton, but in this case, it paid off. Yeah, yeah, but I think... I, I actually knew she didn't at the time because okay. Jeremy had checked it out. And right. Ian hadn't watched it really either. But it was quite funny when I did the first take and I get into the car. And up to that point, they never even knew another person was in the movie with them. All right. And we did the first take, very intense, because Jeremy literally said, the one thing you have to do is make sure that you leave in the car with them so I had to convince them to drive away with me in the back and that yeah <laughs> which you know you go alright so okay. he hadn't given them the direction that whatever happens you have to drive nope. off with Max in the back no it was up to me to convince them and we sat there for a long time and thought how are we going to do this because if you go in with complete pity they're not yeah. going to believe you yeah yeah if you, if you arrive and you're already crying you go help me please help me please I'm automatically not going to believe that yeah yeah so we decided, kind of reverse psychology, but also because they did hit me with the car, I put the blame on them and said, did you do this to me? Did you do this to me? And immediately, I, I, I found immediately I had Alice on my side. Mm. She was like, let's help him, Tom. And it was actually, it was Ian was like, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going anywhere. And it took a lot of convincing for him to go and to, and to take me with them. So um, uh, in our intro, you didn't hear it, but in our intro on the podcast, we talked about how Danton, Danton has... Uh, kind of spawned this new wave of actors hitting Hollywood. So you've got you know Dan Stevens and you know, you know Jessica Brown Findlay mm. and Lily James is doing Cinderella right now. Yeah, and you've just done the imitation game as well. Yes. Um, yeah. So did Downton really kick on, kick it on for you guys? Did you find that that was the one that that was a catalyst almost for? I yeah I I I think it would be wrong not to say that Downton has had the a massive effect in relation to all of our exposures. Mm. Uh, the fact that it's so big in the States, it just puts you in people's minds that, that maybe, you know, didn't actually know you existed before. Yeah. And while I had done movies before Downton ever, uh, you know, was on the scene for me, yeah, the, the reaction and the interest in you had spiked exponentially. And as you say, like, if you look at Jess and doing Winter's Tale, or Dan just got, you know, he's doing, one of the, he's playing the lead bad guy in the new... Uh, Mm. Night in the at the museum, yeah, yeah. and then yeah. you leave. You actually got Sophie McShearer, who's playing one of the evil sisters in Cinderella oh, really? as well. So oh, really? There's okay, two wow. dancers in oh, there. My God. Yeah, so it is incredible. And you have yeah. you have Hugh Bonneville who just did Monuments Men That's with right, George yeah. Clooney. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I think I think the show has been so good to us in, in that in that sense. Do you have Rocket at Filth as well? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's it like on set? Are you now basically all heading off to do auditions? Or do you, do you get is, a, lot of, a lot of the time when you're there on set, you're, yeah. you're asking people like uh, Joe Fro or or Brendan Coyle. You go, you wouldn't actually come in and help me with this tape, which is great <laughs> because you're all doing it, you know. And it's but and, and that's great. And I remember Jess doing that. And Michelle Dockery does the same. She's just gone out. She has a movie coming out, Liam Neeson, nonstop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's been it's been mad that it's kind of had this effect and yeah. just going out there and being out there. They all said since the start of its success out in the states, said Al, you got to get out there just to experience it. And I hadn't had an opportunity actually, thankfully, to work because I was uh, last year I did a movie called Grand Piano with Elijah Wood. Yeah, uh, so I didn't have a chance to go out to the states. And la- this January I just went out, and it was it was amazing. The reaction not only of you know people on the street, but then within the industry. And I, I was lucky enough to go to the SAGs where we actually won the award. For for best ensemble for cast and just the people coming up to you saying they enjoy the show it was just one of those things I'll, I'll never you know I'll never experience again like Julianne Moore coming up going <laughs> Branson and she was like I'm, I'm sorry I've watched it I've watched the show I know you lose your wife and you're just going you're Julianne Moore why are you talking to me about this you know which is really lovely you know and yeah, yeah and I think for that reason Downton's going to be one of those things that for the rest of my life will always sit there it's a very special mm. project you know, Absolutely. but how long it'll go on, we'll see. Well, I, I thought it was going to end with the next series. Is that has that been confirmed? Yeah, or? It, it, there's definitely going to be another series. Yeah. I think, I think, a lot of people feel that five would probably be the right the right time to mm-hmm. to see it go. I mean, Brian Cranston said a great thing about Breaking Bad. So it could have gone on. You could have gone on, but he said, "I want to go out uh, at the top of my game." world champion at all, uh, at all weight divisions <laughs> you know I don't want to be this fighter who keeps getting back into the ring and it's a great analogy you know because yeah. if you keep leaving them for more that, that's when your show really will always stand the test of time if you look at The Wire yeah. all, all the shows The Happy Five absolutely so maybe absolutely. maybe it'd be a good idea so in terms of Tom was that a hint at his future direction is he going to create a, a meth lab is he going to Delve in the murky world of drugs. What do you see him going? Yeah, Branson turns into the biggest drug dealer in Ripon. <laughs> he's there. He's there. Yeah, <laughs> selling ice <laughs> down the streets. He opens a meth lab right beside Doctor Clarkson's surgery. <laughs> They'll never guess. You know. Yeah, he's not political. I can see you with a shaved head and a goatee. I could say, uh, I could that'd see be it. hilarious. That'd be good. Breaking Abbey. Not only has it given you the opportunities in terms of the rest of your career, but uh, I was looking up on the on the, uh, the internet earlier on today, and you're doing something in Georgia next next January. You're hosting a weekend, and yeah, happy weekend. Is, 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 well, yeah, is this right? Yeah. yeah. So they've they've asked very kindly would I go over and uh, to do a Q and A, a talk about Downton mm-hmm. for uh, with, along with Jessica Fellows, who wrote the first two books that accompanied the series. So like just stuff like That's that. But also, I just came back from Australia. They invited me down to go to the Melbourne Cup. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and to promote the show, obviously. But they said, "Would you come down?" But that's like a side thing to work. Well, I yeah. thought it might be, but wow, actually they, turned out to be a lot of work. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, <laughs> okay. which, again, just shows how many people want to talk about the show. <laughs> but I was like, that was amazing, John. I mean, those kind of perks are, you know, something something that are really really lovely and very special. Yeah. And I brought my brother, who's a, we're both huge racing fans. So he had a great week. Uh, he had a great week because he didn't have to do any work. But you know, <laughs> get up, go to the races, come home. Nice and easy. It says on the uh, the weekend you're going to host in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, that you're going to be hosting a pub quiz as well. Are you aware of this? I heard this, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a pub quiz. That's yeah, the first night. Do you have to come up with the questions yourself or is someone going to do the questions? If I do, you? I'd love to do like a proper Downton Abbey quiz. 
but like really hard questions like what was the colour of the pen Violet picked up in season two Jesus Christ yeah. gold exactly. it probably will be nice. <laughs> you see the thing is I want one of the answers so yeah. I'll just go yeah that's what's the most popular because that's wrong <laughs> I am doing a day night pub quiz but like most pub quiz I'm at I'll probably be absolutely so drunk by the time <laughs> the first question be, that's going to be fun yeah. that is going to be fun and just very briefly then uh, about the imitation game uh, because that that was the hottest script that won the blacklist a couple of years yeah. ago. Uh, Graham Moore. Wrote Graham Moore, yeah, yeah Graham lovely Moore. guy as well. And, uh, you know, it's such heat around that script, so... Uh, yeah, I was actually filming Downton when I first uh, got the script and they said, you know, give, give a look at this character, John Cairncross. And y- you could tell, though, it was such a such a, a poignant story, a very important story, I think, to tell now, especially the fact that Alan Turing was just recently pardoned mm. uh, for, for being homosexual. And the script handles it in such a beautiful way and you really get a sense of what an incredible man and what a genius he was uh, and when you then heard who was going to be in the cast you were like gee this is I really wanted to be part of the project went in and met met Morton uh, Tilsing it was amazing director because mm. The Headhunter is one of my favourite movies of yeah. 2012 and yeah I was very lucky to go in and, and I got the part after the audition but that was one of the sets I mean I sat on the set with the Enigma machine there original Enigma machine and that kind of had its own force as well because it had like the swastika and everything on it you know really yeah and you're sitting there going this was actually used it was a really weird strange feeling and sitting there with that in the centre of the table Charles Dance Mark Strong Matthew Good Matthew Beard who's a fantastic young actor Kieran Knightley and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and I was like this is good company for a Monday morning Holy cow. Yeah. It's a very yeah. posh table. It was, it's a very <laughs> posh table. Yeah, and me ruining it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was Karen Cross English or? He's Scottish. Scottish. Yeah, he was, okay. he was a, he's a Scottish uh, cryptographer who was a Bletchley Park. Of course, Karen Cross. That's, yeah. yeah, you couldn't get a more Scottish name than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it, and a fascinating character. And the, the rehearsal period that we had that Morton insisted on made such a difference because Graham was there for the whole time. And being able to really get into a script that you needed to to get that kind of sense of camaraderie as well within the group they were called the uh, the Hut 8 group because that's mainly where they worked Hut 8 okay. at Bletchley Park and it, it really kind of created this this bond amongst the, the, the five actors that were in that room so when we actually finally got to making, making it you did really feel that we were a team okay. and I think that was exactly what Morton wanted but also the fact that we had Graham there as well we were so confident what we were going in to do mm. Script-wise, so, so how much does the uh, the, uh, the attempt to crack the enigma? How much focus is that in the script? Because uh, my, my initial feeling about the script was that it focused largely on on Turing's life and on on him trying to cover it, up his. Yeah, uh, it does. I mean, like it, yeah. it's it's uh, it's a lot dependent on Morton Evans, yeah. I suppose I could say fifty fifty, and then up being I mean, you, you'd one it. line. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you look like you the dustbin man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd say in the script, I, I think it's. Probably, see, it's interesting because it's kind of intercut. It's hard to say okay. exactly how much, but it's definitely focuses on on his life after as well. Okay, in okay. a big way. Uh, Rory Kinnear is in as well. In in, in amazing. In, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. yeah, I felt very lucky to be part of that project. Fantastic! And I can't wait to see it. And I, I missed the rap party because I was in Australia, and I'm gutted because apparently they showed a big big chunk of of, of, of stuff that had been put together. Oh really? Livid. Oh man, that sucks. That no. sucks. But in terms of the Enigma machine, did you get the do you get to touch these things? Yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. And we had a guy there, and the machine that Alan Turing built to break the Enigma was called, he referred to as the bomb. We all had books on it, and you get to a certain point in that, and it's so complex. These guys were so in, like, 
incredibly intelligent. You get to a point and you're like, I get how they built. No, I'm gone. I'm gone. <laughs> and then you even try and go back like two, two or three points in it. You're like, no, nah, I'll start again. I have no idea. You know. So in terms of the gobbledygook you have to say, do you have to understand it or? Yeah, well, we try to. Stuff? Like, yeah. You do get to the point where they're like, we're just going to diagonally angle the motherboard. You're like, yeah, good luck. I'll, I'll be outside. <laughs> yeah. we, can, we can dub this, right? With someone who yeah, knows exactly. what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. But, yeah. Well, I, I can't wait to see it and uh, you know, wish you all the best. Anything uh, anything coming up in the future? What are you working on at the uh, right next? There's a couple of things actually really interesting scripts that I've, I've been, got, been getting but the thing with Downton is you know, it, it takes eight months of the year so you're constantly kind of playing this game of availability which Downton have been always really, really kind to, mm. to make work if possible. So one thing that Julian Fellows as a former actor really does try yes. to help. <laughs> he does say like if, if I can I will and I think that's, that's a real credit to him the fact that he says if you get a part, he's delighted for you, and if, if you can make it work, he will. So, so hy- hypothetical situation. Yeah. Uh, say, for example, you're about to start filming in Downton. Yeah. And Star Wars Episode Seven comes your way. Yeah. What do you do? J.J. Abrams, big fan of the show, actually came out on set. He is. Yeah. Yeah. I'd grab my lightsaber <laughs> and head for head for the House of Lords, put it to <laughs> Julian Fellows' throat, and say, "Don't take this from me." <laughs> I think in Episode Three, Tom could fall into the uh, into a threshing machine in the, in the meth lab that he's built. Oh, you mean oh, yeah, in episode three, season five? Yeah, I like it. Or yeah. he's out there surveying the land with Sibby yeah. and his daughter, who takes an evil turn, a la, <laughs> a la Omen, hops into a tractor <laughs> ha- tractor behind him and drives right over him. Done. Boom. It's a ratings winner. It is. I yeah. can see it. I can see it causing a okay. huge splash. Well, do you want to call him or will I? Uh, you call him. Okay. You call him. But you got to be on there there at the phone. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. Okay. And did you you met him? You simply you met him when he came on set. JJ? I missed him actually. No, again, he was in the sets of the kitchens, which are shot in Ealing. Ah, and we were shooting okay. up in Highclere at the time. You're missing all the good stuff at the moment. I know. I know. All right. But I'll oh well. Wish you all the best. It's going okay. It's it's, uh, yeah, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. <laughs> all right, brilliant. Thanks Listen, so much for coming. Thank you very much. Cheers, thank, you. thank you. Lovely chap, Alan Leach. By the way, nothing to be scared of, you guys. Nothing to be scared of. Uh, now we come to the part of the show that's more packed in Liam Neeson's pantry because he likes to have a lot of food in hand in case guests no, pop Chris, around. No, this is my disapproving face. It's a review section, of course, and this week it seems every film ever made is coming out. Let's start with Don John, an edgy rom-com that marks the directorial debut of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's already a hyphenate, but now he's a multi-hyphenate, who also writes and stars as a porn addict who finds love in the not-too-shabby shape of Scarlett Johansson. So what do we think of this one? Yes, or does he, etc. Um, this is uh, a really good debut, I think, from, from Joseph Gordon-Levitt and really marks him out as a, as a writer-director to watch as, as well as an actor who's always interesting and always one to watch. Um, so he kind of plays a, a New Jersey Shore kind of a figure. Uh, I've never watched that, but I'm pretty sure from the pictures I've seen, that's the kind of guy he's going for. So, you know, very much into the perfectibility of his own life, you know, uh, spends a lot of time at the gym working out, uh, spends a lot of time picking up women that he thinks are good enough for him, marks them out of 10. You know, he's that kind of guy. Um, and uh, and it's basically kind of all about what he can get out of any given situation. Um, when he meets Scarlett Johansson's Barbara, he basically, you know, she's the perfect 10. She, he thinks she's wonderful. And she seems to feel the same way about him and everything seems to be going swimmingly. But, of course, the fact that he is addicted to porn is a little bit of a dampener on things and uh, and does kind of, you know, uh, throw a spanner or two in the works in terms of their, their path to whatever their path is. Um, it's also worth uh, noting that uh, Julianne Moore is in this as a, as a, 
a student he meets when he when he takes some evening classes and she has her own kind of take on on him and his life and, and they become kind of friends it's kind of an, an odd relationship at first um so i mean the first half of this film i i utterly enjoyed i think it's very very funny very clever um but also i think you know says some real things about the world that we live in today and the sort of the hypersexualization of of the way things are and it's kind of an interesting take on things. I had some problems with the second half personally, but I think, you know, the the, the beginning is, is a really strong start. How does it compare to 500 Days of Summer? Because in my head, there is a natural comparison towards <laughs> somebody who's very romantically orientated yeah. and somebody who is a little bit more, perhaps not romantically orientated, but more practical. Is, is there, a, is there a, a certain... There is maybe a comparison there in that, you know, I think both of them have a, a go to an unrealistic end of the spectrum in a way, you know, I think. And actually, you know, it's, it's a comparison that's made explicit in, in Scarlett Johansson's character, who's very much uh, obsessed with the romantic ideal while he's obsessed with a kind of sexual or pornified ideal. Um, so there's a kind of a little bit of a clash between them in, in terms of what they're looking for out of a relationship and what they expect the other person to provide. Porn is a sort of a, a, a tangent, a diversion in a, in a young man just growing up. It's basically mm. a film about growing up, really, and starting to see the world as it is rather than as he, he sold it in ads. Yeah. It has this very strange um, interlude with, uh, with the, he goes on a date with, with Scarlett Johansson and they go and see a rom-com that stars... Channing Tatum, which is and Anne Hathaway, and Anne Hathaway, which is just hilariously awful-looking film, and it's got lots of funny things. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it stylistically. What who his cues were? Five Hundred mm. Days of Summer has a little bit of that kind of like the same sort of snapper and crackly editing style, and the way that he has these kind of literal montages of masturbation at the beginning of the film, where yeah. it ends up with like him just throwing tissues in the bin. It's kind of it, it, it's really up in your face. I'm not sure you'd want to take a girl to see this film unless you've been with her for probably four or five years. Yeah, I think I think it's 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 another one. There's like like not quite as to the extent that Shame was. Yeah. I remember coming out of Shame with your brother, and and he just on went date. worst date movie <laughs> ever. We weren't on a date. I should make that clear. But um, but it really would be. This is probably the second worst date movie ever. Certainly as a first date, it, it it raises a lot of questions that you have no business answering that early in a relationship. I I had a little bit of a problem with the way that the female characters went in the second half. Uh, I think to talk too much about it would be spoilerific, but I think that I think there's a false equivalence in this film to an extent between his addiction to porn and her addiction to romance, um, because mm. I don't think that they're quite the same. I think they're both damaging. I get that. I think they're both socially can kind of sort of can socially retard you and romantically retard you, but at the same time, I don't think they're on quite the same level. So I had a little bit of an issue with that, but at the same time. Overall, we really enjoyed this, and we gave this four stars. Okay, next up, uh, let's go to The Counselor, shall we? Which is Ridley Scott's new film, starring an all-star cast. Michael Fassbender, Brad Pitt, Penelope Cruz, Cameron Diaz, and Javier Bardem, to name but five. All attracted, presumably, by the first screenplay written by Cormac McCarthy himself. What do we make of The Counselor? We... Look, it's got an incredible cast, as you point as you point out. Michael Fassbender leads off as the titular counsellor. He is a very comp- morally compromised attorney at law who represents some bad people, including Javier Bardem, uh, who are all kind of immersed in the in the sort of Mexican drug cartel business. And um, it's about making choices, moral choices, amoral choices, and probably ultimately really bad choices. Penelope Cruz plays his uh, his girlfriend. Um, there's a great cameo from Brad Pitt, and uh, Cameron Diaz turns up 
in a sort of strange femme fatale role um, as a as a as a as a woman who loves big rocks and big cats. She has a couple and, of cheetahs and big cars and big. I thought you were about to say something else then. And big cars. There's an extraordinary. Uh, there's an extraordinary scene involving a car, a sports car, which I'm not going to give away too much about. You have to see it to believe it. Uh, is this film any good? Um, I would say that it's less than the sum of its parts. To be truthfully honest, you think with Sir Ridders behind the camera, Cormac McCarthy writing the script, and that cast, you would have all the ingredients for a real dark noir, southern noir classic. It's not that. I felt I had I felt it had problems with structure, and I felt at times it almost needed Cormac McCarthy to rein back himself a little it's bit. It's Cormac McCarthy esque. Yes, I mean he's obviously one of the great modern novelists, um, and all the Pretty Horses, No Country for Old Men, The Road. These are all modern classics. Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian, of course, and and if you know the sort of world he loves to to delve into, it's pretty. It gets pretty bleak. It can be kind of violent in unusual ways and this film has all of that what it doesn't really have in the same way is a great structure I didn't think I felt it started off as one thing ended up as something else and had some strange tangents I also felt it made the mistake of perhaps being too in love with its dialogue at times to the to the uh, to the detriment of its cast and the story and the pacing of the story yeah I, I do wonder I also think it's it's hero or a slash anti-hero played by Michael Fassbender is perhaps a little too passive. It, it's it's making a point that one decision can have horrible repercussions for you and everyone you know and love. But it kind of hammers that point home, and uh, I think a little bit too much, a little bit too on the nose. Sometimes he's a little bit too passive as events yeah. uh, take place and, and, and dwarf him and swamp him, uh, really. Maybe we're just so used to watching things like No Country for Old Men, where we have a very uh, active uh, protagonist who goes out, or even Breaking Bad over the last five years. I mean, you know, when you have a Mexican drug cartel, uh, you have New Mexico, you have... It's very hard to, to escape the spectre of Breaking Bad, especially when Dean Norris turns up in a cameo uh, <laughs> later yeah, on right. in the movie. Well, uh, but yeah, I, it's okay, but I just... I, I do get the feeling, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Cormac McCarthy as a, as a novelist, but I do get the impression that had this script turned up with anyone else's name on it, uh, for example, a first-timer, you wouldn't attract this, this caliber of cast and you wouldn't get that caliber of director. And I do wonder if uh, if they were a little bit blinded by McCarthy's name. I think it would have been it would have been subject to some rewrites, to be honest. Just yeah. in terms of the way it's structured. I mean, no disrespect, obviously, to this great, great writer, but as a film, I think he's probably still learning his trade as a, as a screenwriter. It's a different art, a different, different medium altogether. I he wouldn't think of it in those terms. What? I they're they're the same thing. Got, I imagine he thinks he's got nothing to learn. Well, if you know what I mean, he's I like, mean, I'm a great writer. This should be easy. This I'm not is fine. I've written this and I've written it on my own terms, as he did. He wrote it completely on his own terms. And you, if you read the screenplay, which has now been published, he he formats it in the same fu Cormac McCarthy way that he <laughs> he approaches for all all, all his novels, mm. as it, which makes it a very very interesting read. Yeah, um, well, you're but, right. He probably wouldn't. I'm not deigning to put words in his mouth, but I, I just, from my perspective, there was some issues with that. And uh, and I, I mean, the passive protagonist thing is interesting, but that didn't bother me too much. I also like the fact that it started off in media res with you don't know what's come before. There's so much that's unexplained, and that's fine too. Yeah, that's okay. But I just it just lurched, and the, and the whole thing changed, and the story and the, what it seemed to be interested in kind of changed halfway through. Um, but you know, there's some good performances. I'm not entirely. I wasn't entirely convinced by Cameron Diaz and her cheaters. Does he get an extra star for uh, 
to Bardem's amazing hair. It does. That takes it to three stars. But in every Brian Grazer film ever made, you get an extra star just for his amazing hair, which is the Possibly which is the same thing. I, I would say there's one thing about about this film. It doesn't really have a sense of palpable evil or sweaty, uh, you know, that sort of sweaty sense of evil that you get in movies like Angel Heart, where. Uh, you know, a character has made a moral choice that has compromised him, and you can feel the forces of darkness closing in. Yeah, I'm just picking Angel Heart just as a random movie, as no, a random a good example. example. And I think, uh, I think the counselor has it doesn't ever really get that tone, and it goes for sometimes these almost these weird non sequiturs, like the the scene with Cameron Diaz in the car, uh, that are just baffling. But I don't think there's a sense of of palpable evil closing in. I didn't think that was a good scene. I think people talk about it. I don't think it served the, the, the film particularly well in any way. I don't know what it said, and I found it a bit, a bit weird. Um, but you're right. Comment McCarthy works in. It, it, there's not a single evil. I think Angel Heart's a good example. There's more of a sort of cloud of blackness that envelops the characters. Mm. And, and sim- it's symbolic almost. And this film's the same, that you don't really have one single evil no. protagonist, which is, again, fine, but it doesn't crank up the tension enough. And I also think probably coming so soon after Breaking Bad, which does cover some of the same country, doesn't, it doesn't, you know, doesn't work quite so well as that. Having said that, it is beautifully shot, as yes. you might expect. The performances are excellent. And without giving too much away... Uh, prepare yourself for what I think is probably 2013's greatest screen death I will say that and leave it at that uh, three stars for the counsellor which is a recommendation You, I guess with the heavyweight calibre of cast behind it you, you owe it to yourself to go see this one on the big screen uh, ok let's turn now to the butler Forrest Whitaker was on the podcast earlier on Ali this is one of those movies that starts with inspired by a true story and that's what it is it's inspired by the story of an actual real life butler who was for about 30 odd years working in the White House. They changed the name for this, didn't they? They did indeed. So it's a different character. What happens in this film didn't necessarily directly happen to, you know, the real uh, butler who is called uh, Eugene and his surname is Alan. So that was the real butler who who was, through about seven or eight administrations, a mainstay of the White House, uh, serving drinks and being the person in the room that you weren't meant to notice. If you wanted some tea, suddenly appeared from uh, the wall and was suddenly there giving you a cup of tea. <laughs> okay. um, anyway, so you may have seen the amazing poster that is currently up, and amazing in the same way that the, uh, the, the poster for any huge star-studded uh, ensemble cast movie is amazing, when you cannot believe that those people are in this film. This has, as Dwight Eisenhower, Robin Williams, with the best comb-over of this year. It is incredible. He looks like a turtle. Uh, there's also, if it had a comb-over, uh, we've got... As we've mentioned, leave uh, Schreiber as um, Lyndon B. Johnson, and we've also got Ronald Reagan <laughs> as Hans himself. Yes, that's right. Alan Rickman does a good ten to fifteen minutes of Ronald Reagan impersonating Sold. In this movie. Sold. Done. Exactly. Sold. Sold. There are about three or four cameos appearances where you go, right, that's it. Uh, and that's what I'm paying for, and that's fantastic. But this is from Lee Daniels, who gave us Precious, and um, last year gave us Paperboy, and. I think the two words that spring to my mind when I come to discuss this film is crude and preachy. The story itself uh, involves uh, Cecil uh, Gaines, who is uh, Forrest Whitaker's character, the butler, dealing with his son, we've been talking about father-son relationships, uh, who's played by David Yellowo, um, who is the son of the butler who's working in the White House, but also a Black Panther. So it, it encapsulates the whole of the civil rights movement from the 1950s through 2008, it covers all of that as it applies to this one pair, the father and the son. You have Oprah Winfrey as Cecil Gaines' wife, who 
turns in an amazing performance. She's actually very good. Phil and I, I think it's both fair to say that we agree on the fact that she cannot peel potatoes uh, <laughs> at all. In the movie, she's her character is meant to be incredibly good at making the magical potato salad. And to see her peel potatoes, like seeing uh, someone who's just discovered both potatoes and peelers, hammering them together like crayons. It's one of those rare moments where you actually want to get into the screen and help. Yeah. <laughs> because wanna... it could just derail the whole film, this stuff. Well, she, she has a chef normally, you know, so yeah, she, she, she can't be held responsible. Probably hasn't peeled a potato. Literally or figuratively. But to make that for many, many years. not matter, John Cusack is Richard Nixon. So what do you care? <laughs> yes, um, true. The movie is very long. It's in 132 minutes, I believe. So it is, like I say, it's got a lot to cover. But its performances pull it through. I was so impressed with Oprah and Forrest Whitaker, as mm. he often is, was very good indeed. And he really makes you believe what could otherwise be like I say, a preachy and a blunt movie, when they want to set the time periods, they will do the most basic idea. In the 70s set period, guess who's dressed in a massive ensemble, black and white, super flared, mega dance disco outfit? Elvis. Oprah Winfrey oh. and another character. When they're in the uh, when they're in the 80s, they're wearing like super flammable... Rubik's Yeah, wearing Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> uh, they're wearing super flammable, you know... Um, Shell suits. Yeah, it is so on the nose. This film. It's funny. Every single time. When you talk to a lot of people doing period stuff, they go, "Well, what, if you're doing a film set in the '80s, you don't have '80s stuff because everyone in the '80s owned bought their stuff in the '70s, so it has to have the bit of that." This film ignores all of that. It's not having that. It's having like disco era. Everybody's for some reason putting on disco outfits just of an evening. Does Nixon dance in this? Does he? Do not Nixon. A lot of people John doesn't Fulton. put on disco. Oh, outfit. No, he does not do that. It is. It is honestly so bad for that. But again, what do you care? Jane Fonda is Nancy Reagan. It's like. Amazing. And do they get announced when they appear on screen? Does someone come on and go, and there, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome you're Jane Fonda. <laughs> you're, you're joking, but when it goes to the Nixon administration, yeah. it goes at the bottom of the screen, da -da 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 -da, Nixon administration, because if you didn't know, sometimes you couldn't tell what they were doing. I have seen trailers for this film, and I could not tell unless, because I was on you beforehand, but if you didn't know beforehand that John Cusack was playing Richard Nixon, you wouldn't know that John Cusack was playing Richard Nixon, mm. judging from the trailers, because he, they don't make any effort to make John Cusack look like they, Richard they Nixon. They give him a slightly pointy nose. Really? Yes. Slightly. Okay. And they made him sweaty. And he's sweaty. sweaty. And his voice is quite good. Ah, not I think who I enjoyed most was uh, James Marsden, who I recently rewatched in Hairspray and cannot get him out of that purple suit doing that kind of semi-robotic body flip uh, out of my head. He is playing JFK. Mm. That's good casting It's inspired me. casting. And his voice is good too. Uh, it's, it's he's pretty he's pretty good he's, he's pretty, pretty good. good this is I this is a three star film for us I'm with Ali all the way I thought the performance was really good I thought the film was very very on the nose I need this to rewatch Precious and I thought that was a great film but maybe in retrospect well that was... Precious is if you want a Lee Daniels film that's it because it's a really great film this is not that but it's trying to do trying to do something that's probably not really possible in a film which is condense and conflate all of this stuff into two hours 15 minutes through the eyes of one person a little sort of Forrest Gump like skip through American history and so you have to make these compromises in the screenplay you have to give him this troubled backstory and you have to make his son a pa Black Panther and a member of the freedom movement and his other son go to Vietnam these things did not happen in real a lot of these things didn't happen in real life he had one son who did go to Vietnam but that it doesn't make a great story so they've they've changed it they've, changed, they've switched it up and uh, this is the result and uh, it's okay. Three stars for Lee Daniels the Butler. I'm not sure if it's called Lee, Dan Lee Daniels the Butler over here. It was all that kerfuffle in the states, wasn't it? Because yeah, uh, Warner Brothers played uh, Dirty Pool 
I think essentially we can we can say that with the Weinstein Company. There was a there was a movie or do you want to not say Let's that? not say that. Okay. Uh, th- yeah, there was a there was a controversy in the States because another studio owned the rights to the title The Butler. So uh they, they kinda went to arbitration and came up with Lee Daniels the Butler as as the f- official title of the movie there. What's wrong with John Carpenter as a butler? <laughs> Mariah Carey's in this one, so what do we care? Any Kravitz? <laughs> Uh, yes, Lenny you, Kravitz. Okay, I'm just going to start naming people. Now. Yeah, Lenny Kravitz. Right. Lenny Kravitz is in this movie. Yes, Sebastian Coe. No, no. Oh. Doc Cotton. Doc Cotton. No, Terence is good though. Keep going with Terence. Doc Cotton plays Hillary Clinton. Terence Howard. Terence Howard is in this. Terence oh, Howard. Amazing. Okay, that's good. Ant. No, no, but Deck is no, no Deck is neither. <sighs> I tell you who else is in here. Gary Neville. <laughs> we have an Oscar winner. You may know him from a certain Cameron Crowe movie. Who is it? No, 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 no! I can't no. remember. That's the whole point of a masking this. We oh, have to get. sorry. <laughs> we don't just go. Who is it? Back. Um, <laughs> an sure Oscar winner it. from a Cameron Crowe movie. Mm. Jonathan Lipnicki. Incorrect. <laughs> Tom Cruise. Incorrect. He didn't win an Oscar either. Oh. An Oscar winner from a Cameron Crowe movie. Come on, controversial because he absolutely dive bombed his career. Cooper Gooding Jr. Correct, Amundo. Oh. He's in this. Yes. Everyone is in this film. It is a checklist of people you. Actually, enjoy on screen, but don't see enough of. Denzel Washington is not in this film. No, but Oprah is. So that not yet, anyway. <laughs> Get the director's cut. Anyway. It's still filming. <laughs> Moving it's on from still the butler. Going it's still happening. Three stars for the butler. Uh, let's move on now to In Fear. Uh, we had Alan Leach on the podcast Ooh. and this is a uh, very interesting horror film about a, a couple who go uh, to a music festival in Ireland uh, along the way there they get they get very very horribly lost and they begin to think that someone may be behind a conspiracy <gasps> to undermine them psychologically and is Alan Leach the person behind it all yes yes he is because you've already heard no. the interview but Phil yes what can you tell us about Infer well you've just told us everything I haven't told you everything I, I like this I, have to say, I like this film I really enjoyed it. Yes, we gave it three stars. I I might have given it a little bit more even because I I found it very creepy. It had a little bit of the Blair Witches about it. It had, um, but what I really enjoyed about it is it's got this, like you say, it's got a couple, but they're not really a couple. They've only been seeing each other for two weeks, a couple of weeks, and it's a really interesting point in 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 a relationship in in rabbit ears. That you know, what are their what are the bonds of loyalty that keep them together they don't really know each other that well they may I think they've slept together or something they, they, they're they on their way for a weekend away and he's going to check her in check her in that sounds really sleazy let me rephrase that <laughs> he he's booked a hotel as a surprise and she's a bit like mm, I don't know if I but we'll go and that sounds like fun in the end but they get lost and they are it's played cool. by and they are played by um, Ian DeCast. I can't say his name Ian DeCastiger Ian DeCastiger who's currently seen in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and, and, and of course and Alice Englund Jane Campion's daughter. Jane Campion's daughter. That's exactly. seen beautiful creatures. Exactly right. And uh, together, and they're both very, very good. I found. I thought they were, they they had that the difficult job of uh, conveying that that tension without lapsing into the kind of cliched scream queen stroke king territory. And they do that well because the tension does build up. They have all the other kind of classic horror tropes of the of the the suspicious guys in the pub, sort of Wicker Man, uh, American, American Werewolf Country, and then they head off. And as they're driving through, basically a maze, and they don't have sat nav, which is or do they have sat nav? I can't remember. If sat nav, it doesn't work. Doesn't really work. No, they're out in the, the back and beyond in the boondocks, and things get nasty, and then darkness falls, and then you see their those bonds hitherto mentioned uh, start to loosen, and you're like, 
what are these guys going to do? Suddenly you have the, the loyalty to each other, such as it is on one side, and the instinct to survive on the other, pitted against each other. And I thought that was quite an interesting premise for a horror movie, because you don't often see that. You see couples that are, are proper couples, or they're just a single high schoolers out, you know, you know, and they have flirtations, and they're not really, they have any kind of, any kind of link together. Um, and here you do, and I like that. And I thought the chemistry between the leads was pretty good. Mm. And when it starts to fall apart, they did that very well as well. And it's a low-budget Brit film that I would recommend. Micro-budget. Micro-micro-budget. Uh, they were down in Cornwall, I believe, shooting for about four or five weeks, just basically driving around. And the way this film was made is really, really interesting. Director, uh, it's directed by Jeremy Lovering. Um, and uh, basically, he semi-improvised the entire movie. The actors were really told in the morning of each day what they were going to do that day. And as you've probably heard in the interview with Alan... Uh, he knew the entire plot but uh, he had to they didn't know and so he had to persuade them to do things that that had to further the plot it was a very very fascinating way of doing doing a movie like this and what it does is it engenders a a sense of genuine fear in the actors that is palpable again we're talking about palpable senses of atmosphere you know going back to the counsellor and this movie I thought worked for me I you know it, it had me shrieking like a little girl I watched this on my own in the screen room a few months ago and uh it's it's a very scary experience. You got li- lots of little glimpses of things in the corner of the frame, and it plays a lot with horror tropes in a, in a way that I thought was very refreshing. Yeah. This is a good date movie, I think. Yeah, the, the shame with this one is it's not getting a huge release. But no. if you can uh, seek out In Fear this week, we gave it three stars. Like Phil, I would go a little bit higher than that. I'd go four stars with In Fear. But uh, but our Kim Newman reviewed it, and he Kim, is yeah, there's nothing he does not know about horror movies. Mm. Uh, so uh, but do go and check it out if you can in cinemas this week in fear and now moving on now to the last review of this week this jam-packed week we had uh, Jude Law on the show last week so let's talk about Dom Hemingway his new film in which he plays a larger-than-life criminal alongside Richard E. Grant who's going to take this one? I'll take this one okay as I mentioned in the podcast last week I'm a huge fan of Richard Shepard who's the writer-director of this film he brought us The Matador back in 2005 uh, that uh, starred Pierce Brosnan as an assassin who kind of goes to um, seed in New Mexico and loses his mind a bit uh, it also it just generally it did what it did very well uh, this film unfortunately doesn't really set out its stall and keep to it it doesn't it's about this uh, safecracker who gets essentially shafted by his big crime boss who lets him take the rap for a for a crime that goes wrong he gets 12 years in prison and he lives out his sentence even though in that meantime his wife has died of cancer and his young daughter has grown up she's just you know she's an, she's an adult with a, with a child now and he comes out and essentially wants his money and he gets to meet the crime boss that is grateful for him but that is down in the south of France and then he comes back after that to England and those are the two, the first act and the second act that's that's kind of what the film is and then it doesn't have a third act unfortunately this film, even though Dom Hemingway is a loudmouth, super angry super funny, very loquacious rude, visceral Tarantino-esque loudmouth gorgeous mutton chops and the big boots and you know him and Richard E. Grant who's just as ever just good sardonic fun they're great together and he runs around wanders around naked and there's all kinds of japery it feels half baked the story doesn't complete the arc just stops halfway through and as much as I really wanted to like this film because as I say I really like um, I was about to say The Dictator but I really like The Matador this just doesn't work as a film Phil and I when the film actually ends it is genuinely fade to black snap and you go wait is the real come off (laughs) honestly you thought you'd hear the Mm. it was very odd I love Jude Law and he is 
he is showing off so much of his talent that we don't get to see enough. You I, mentioned he was naked, yes. Yeah, of course, his talent. Uh, and, it, yeah, it just doesn't quite succeed. Uh, if you're a huge Jude Law fan and you want to see a, a movie which first scene sees a man absolutely stark naked uh, talking about his penis for 15 minutes, build your boots. Alternatively, I'm having a webcam show on Sunday. Please stop. Pretty much the same thing. Yeah, yeah. You do it's that Google Hangout. You re- it is. You realise you it don't is. have internet, do you? I, I, oh. Yeah. Okay. So what have I been doing for the I, last six weeks? I, I'm going to just jump in and, and agree with everything Ali said. I, well, but, well, I think I Jude Law, Jude Law well, I'm disagreeing with you on principle. And uh, he's great. Full gust, gusto, a bit Ben Kingsley in Sexy Beast. Yeah. Really throws himself into it. And as he told us, you know, he turned up on set stark bollock naked on the first day and he was just like deal with it everyone I'm here I'm going to do this thing <laughs> it's going to get nasty there's a lot of C-bombs don't take your mum and um, I just think again structural problems really derail it because I enjoyed the first third and I like Richard it's great to see Richard E. Grant um, and there's a bit of sort of odd couple chemistry between those two um, and uh, there's this kind of interesting set piece at the uh, the house where the two kind of come head to head um, but that's as good as it gets, I would say. After that, I'm not really sure where it goes. It has one of the best uses of slow-mo you'll see in cinema this year, but aside from that, it doesn't quite work. Sorry. Disappointing two stars. Disappointing two stars, indeed. That is a shame, because uh, the trailers looked good, everything looked good about this movie. That's a, that's a shame. But two stars, it is indeed for Dom Hemingway, and that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by two of the stars of The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, Elizabeth Banks and Stanley Tucci. And let me tell you, that may be the most pleasantly sweary interview we've ever conducted with language that would turn Katniss Everdeen's hair white. And also that film's director, Mr. Francis Lawrence. We didn't get J-Law, but we did get F-Law. F-Larry, he prefers. F-Larry, really. I suppose a director wouldn't like to be known as F-Law. Yeah, it's not really the best bad image. No, not really. Uh, and fans of the great horror director, Mr. George A. Romero, will be delighted to know that our podcast special with George will be up on Monday. That's 45 minutes of Romero goodness. And that's Monday the 18th of November. And it's a must listen for fans of zombies. And you know what? Non-zombies alike. We're calling it Monday in the Dark with George. Monday of the Dead. Sure. We should have called it that, shouldn't we? Really? Mm. Oh, well. Too late to go back now, wasn't it? Okay, so until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Farewell. It's goodbye from Ali. Bye now. It's goodbye from Phil. Cheerio. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to plug in my webcam. See you next week. Bye.